0: Good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, depending upon the case may be where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, live, of The Other Side of Midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn, when all the things we used to talk about in the wee hours of the morning, as we were twittering back and forth to Art Bell and George and all the other imitators, now have kind of... uh, Kind of soaked into the consciousness of the entire planet 24 7 if anybody tries to tell you that this time is just normal that things are just going along the way they've always been going along that the news you see and the rumors and the twitter accounts and the you know uh twilights and the i forget all the different you know private blogs and chats that are out there if they try to tell you that's all normal no, it is not. We are we are in a time of extraordinary change. What Art uh, kind of you know very uh, euphemistically called some years ago the quickening, meaning I believe, if I remember how he defined it, that things would happen faster and faster. But I don't think that he really got a handle on the the tenor and the tone and the quality of things changing. So radically. I mean, have you heard of this professor at some Florida university? I I hope it's not Florida State, who has actually proposed a revision of the Constitution where the First and Second Amendment are radically abridged and freedom of the press is curtailed. I mean, people are nuts out there. They're nuts. They're absolutely nuts. And I'm, you know, of the opinion that a lot of it is coming from shall we say external sources? And that's a very long conversation. Um, Sometime after Christmas, I think it might work out for uh, New Year's night. Um, We're going to, I believe, have a show about these changes based on some very interesting interpretation of the Mayan calendar, the Mayan long count and uh, Mayan elders. And um, that's going to be really intriguing. I just kind of got wind of this this afternoon and I've set in motion uh, uh, some procedures to try to get to this person to get him on the show. Someone who's done a lot of very interesting work and I I liked uh, what I read. So we will see if, in fact, uh, that can take place. I I will obviously let you know as we get uh, closer, like by next weekend, we should know. Tonight, we have a very special guest, someone that I've wanted to talk to about a whole bunch of this stuff that we're currently immersed in um, for quite some time. And the schedule's all worked out, and he is safely ensconced in his Brooklyn uh, apartment. And um, we will be talking to him momentarily. But I want to start, as we start every evening, uh, with some news. First of all, if you are new to the show, uh, you want to go to TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com. That's our URL, theothersideofmidnight.com, And when you click on that, you will find a banner at the top of the page. Tonight's banner says, Web Space Telescope, The Coming Astrophysical Slash ET Revolution. And my guest there, Dr. Greg Matloff. Um, we'll get to Greg momentarily, but let's, uh, when, when you get to that page, click on that banner that will take you to the guest page. Click on My Items. Richard under there. That takes you to my section of Radio with Pictures. Item number one, we're leaving again tonight with La Palma. The good news is that La Palma appears to be calming down. As of this afternoon, um, this situation appears to be calming. In fact, uh, for three days, quoting from the article, No eruptive activity has taken place. The likelihood that the eruption is actually over is clearly increasing. The cone, that's the volcano itself, only shows mild degassing and no lava flows are active anymore. Official confirmation when the eruption is declared over will likely need to wait a bit longer. Some doubt remains as to the significance of the continuing activity Although of low energy and overall on a decreasing trend, it remains significant and could indicate that magma at depth is still able to pressurize and fracture rocks and create intrusions that might eventually allow it to rise further. However, this is far from certain. It could also be adjustments of the system triggered by the massive shifts of masses that has occurred during the eruption. In the latter case, the quake's should slowly die out, and during the past 24 hours, there were three quakes of magnitude 3.3, 3.5, at about 35 to 36 kilometers depth, in addition to many smaller quakes uh, at uh, at a higher uh, uh, altitude, you know, uh, closer to the to the ground level. Anyway, that's good news because, as you know, the uh, worst case scenario for La Palma is really a bad hair day, so we do not want that to happen. Again, put this uh, link on your phone, pay attention to alerts. If there's major earthquake activity, you want to have a go-bag packed and you want to leave Dodge, particularly if you're along the oceans, rimming the North Atlantic Basin or even in uh, the Caribbean or in South America, because the worst case scenario for La Palma, applicable to the 2001 geophysical model, which looked at this, um, is not good. And fortunately, according to these trend curves, the probability is decreasing. Item number two. Um, Tonight, just before airtime, about two hours ago, the Japanese billionaire, the uh, space tourist, the companion and colleague and cohort of Elon Musk, who was going to take eight people, around the moon in one of the starship spacecraft that, uh, Musk is busily building there along the Gulf coast in Texas, Yusaku Maezawa and his co-pilot and the Russian commander of the mission returned in a Soyuz safely to Kazakhstan, the, the uh, the plateau, the plains of Kazakhstan, um, uh, about two hours ago this evening. That's important because, uh, Miyazawa had to kind of get some space time under his belt to be part of the next extraordinary adventure, which is to go in a spacecraft in the starship, Musk's amazing uh, next generation uh, human spacecraft, on a journey in 2023. I mean, that's just, you know, like months away around the moon. And of course, that's important and interesting and critical and every other spruce that I can think of tonight to say, because, of course, last night, as you know, as part of our uh, Oumuamua uh, test experiment series before the big events next weekend, Christmas weekend, we broadcast about 15 minutes of coded information to the moon, and we got answers. And as uh, David Sarita outlined last night, uh, two sets of those answered involved A, the speed of light, which is kind of like the E.T. saying, oh, you slowpokes, you guys, you're, you're limiting your transmissions to the speed of light. Oh, isn't that droll? Isn't that cute? Isn't that fun? Because obviously, uh, and that's a very long discussion that we've had on previous weeks, so we will not go into it in depth tonight. Um, that's not the final speed limits of the universe, uh, Einstein obsessives notwithstanding. I mean, Michelson Morley did not say there is no ether. Um, And it has been incredibly misinterpreted over the years by the mainstream. My opinion is this is by design. This is deliberate because a uh, a different set of physics opened up such doorways that certain political structures do not want that kind of freedom. And if you think that science can be abrogated, yeah, all you do is control the journals and that controls what gets published. And if it isn't published in a journal, it doesn't exist for 99.99% of the mainstream. Fortunately, the guy we're going to talk to tonight, my friend Greg Matloth, is not part of that establishment. He's a real scientist. He can think outside the box. He has some extraordinarily original, innovative ideas about consciousness in the galaxy, in the universe, and we're going to get to those. In fact, we're going to talk about this extraordinary revolution that's going to be ushered in in about six months with the Cross fingers, cross toes, cross everything, successful launch of the James Webb Space Telescope on Christmas Eve. And um, I'm really feeling very good about this. And that, of course, has zero scientific merit. It's just that there's so much invested in Webb, and they've spent so many dollars, like $9 billion over budget to make sure that a myriad of little latches and springs and relays and bearings and all the incredibly complicated machinery required to remotely like one and a half million miles behind the earth away from the sun at the L2 point, all that remote control computerized operation to unfold and lock the mirror into place, which is really an assemblage of, I think it's 18 hexagonal mirrors that all have to fit together to, kind of create this enormous 21 foot wide primary mirror for the telescope. It's not one big, you know, parabolic thing of glass. It's 18 separate hexagons that all fit into place. And then they're tweaked with little motors and lasers are looking and spine guide sensors are monitoring diffraction patterns. And I mean, this is why it's going to take them six months to tweak and tune and tickle like with a feather at the metaphor, uh, the, the um, precision that is needed to turn this into the most extraordinary, most powerful scientific instrument, I know physicists with CERN are unhappy at that phrase, that has ever been created by humankind. So tonight with my friend Greg, we're going to go through the extraordinary ways in which James Webb, the telescope, can revolutionize already revolutionized landscape in space in the cosmos in astrophysics because of hubble which has lasted so much longer because of the ability of astronauts to visit it i mean there's no real practical way with the current state of the art of spaceflight to get to hubble and fix anything unless you want to invoke um you know specters of the secret space program but we won't go there tonight so Hubble will be on its own. It will take them about six months to get it all tuned up, aligned precisely, carefully, redundantly, and then the fun begins. So without further ado, let me introduce the guy to you tonight who is going to take us through this extraordinary journey as to what web might unfold in terms of some of the major outstanding mysteries of uh, astrophysics and astronomy, not, of course, uh, withstanding the completely unknown bonkers, out-of-the-box surprises that the history of astronomy has shown us that every major step forward in capability or size or, or function of major observatories has brought within the ken of human spirit and consciousness. In other words, there will be surprises Some of them we're anticipating, and some of them will be totally off the wall, and there'll be incredible food fights over, are they real? Are they, you know, impressions from longstanding prejudices, or have we entered a really interesting new paradigm? I'm betting on the latter. Dr. Gregory L. Matloff, Emeritus Associate and Adjunct Associate Professor of Physics at New York City College of Technology, has coordinated the astronomy program at that institution, has consulted for the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center, is a fellow of the British Interplanetary Society, is a Hayden associate at the American Museum of Natural History, oh, my old stomping grounds, and is a corresponding member of the International Academy of Astronautics. Greg, pioneering research in solar sail technology, has been utilized by NASA in plans for extrasolar probes, and in consideration of technologies to divert Earth-threatening asteroids. Uh, I guess we're going to talk about the DART mission tonight. He served as a guest professor at the University of Siena in Italy in 1994, has chaired many technical sessions, and was honored by NYCCT as scholar on campus during the 2008 to 2009 academic year. In 1998, Greg was a winner of a SETI competition sponsored by the National Academy of Discovery Science. He has authored or co-authored more than 100 research papers and nine books, which have been cited about 400 times in the literature. One of those books, the Starflight Handbook, uh, published by Wiley in New York in 89, was co-authored with MIT science writer, Dr. Eugene Male. I've got that book, and Gene was a dear friend of mine, my gosh, and helped establish interstellar propulsion studies as a subdivision of applied physics. Anyway, there's a lot more you can read on the other side of Midnight, so just scroll down to his bio. Without further ado, Greg, come on down.
1: Good good morning or good evening or good
0: afternoon whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> See that fits all. One one size so of that fits all. Yeah. Well, you're actually right snuggled uh, up there in 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 Brooklyn, I believe, right?
1: Right. Right. It's shortly after midnight, which is, is proper for beyond midnight. And I just should update that I also I've been now cited more than eight hundred times because that's a, an older edition. My, I'm an adjunct and emeritus full professor, and I also am an advisor to Breakthrough Starshot, so that's where I know Avi Loeb, who I'm sure we'll talk about.
2: <laughs> I'm, uh, sure, I'm yeah. sure we will, yes.
1: So, yeah, so you know, that's okay, a Okay. bit of an update.
0: Dealer's choice,
1: to be here.
0: dealer's choice, where do you want to begin? We have such an incredible fertile field. We only got three hours, so... Where would you like to
2: begin?
1: We could begin with a little review of, I guess, I could we could sort of talk a little bit about the history of observational astronomy and how every little thing has created a major revolution in human thought.
0: Yeah, I think I think the out. lawyers I think the lawyers call this laying foundation, and that's probably a great place because a lot of our listeners are not astronomers, some of them are amateur astronomers, but giving people the foundation to know why web is such a potential huge revolution, I think is very important. So let let us begin there.
1: Okay, one thing I always do with my students, be it in person, where I used to have students, or more recently online with a Zoom derivative called Blackboard, where I have students in their homes, of course, because of COVID, if you talk about Galileo Galilei. Galileo in the late seventeenth, early six early when late, yeah, I guess around sixteen hundred, uh, is an amazing figure in astronomy. He learned first of all early on how to get around the establishment, which the global establishment at least in the West end was the Roman Catholic Church. And he realized, unless he was very, very careful, he was going to end up in a very hot place. And I don't mean hell, I mean burned, burned as Giordano Bruno had been burned at a stake in Rome. And he was, what he did, he learned before anything else in astronomy, that there was an obscure optical firm in, I believe in Amsterdam, And somebody there had discovered, by putting two appropriately ground lenses, one in front of the other, my God, it gave you a magnified image. So he realized what he could do with this. But before he did anything astronomical, he did something for the military-industrial complex. Of
2: course, of course.
1: In the city-state of Venice. And he had this validated, there is a Oh, a painting somewhere, and I think Titian did it, but it might be one of the other old masters of Galileo presenting a spyglass to the Venetian Navy and basically saying, you'll be able to see the Ottoman Turks, your arch enemies, before they see you. And there was about to be a a battle. It was won every generation for control of the Mediterranean. And uh, the Christian armies blew the Ottomans out of the water. And for this Galileo became a hero of Christendom and he was often running. He knew about the Copernican theory. And the Copernican theory is not really I mean Copernicus developed it. He's considered in the in the books to be the originator of the heliocentric or sun centered solar system. He's not the originator. It goes back to Greek times, probably at least 200, 300 BC. Excuse me. And what he does is he says, okay, maybe I can validate some of this. He looks at the moon and he points out in his publications that Aristotle and others said the moon is a perfectly flat surface. It reflects the earth. But if it's so flat, why does it have craters, mountains, flat, relatively flat areas, which he are called call mare or seas? We now know from Apollo and other other explorations that they are extinct, very large lava flows. What you know? So that was one thing. Then he looks at the planet Venus and he notices that Venus has has phases, and because of that. You know, that supports heliocentric thinking. Then he looks at Jupiter, and he sees that Jupiter has four, four satellites, large satellites we call today. He called them small satellites. And the smallest of them is about the size of our moon. The biggest is bigger than the planet Mercury. So they're now small satellites. But they demonstrated that Jupiter is like a miniature solar system. He publishes all of this knowing he's going to get in trouble, but he also realizes anybody could put two lenses together and see this. So he has his trouble with the Pope. He returns, but it's too late for the prevailing worldview because too many people can go out, and get two lenses. People are grinding lenses, of course, for use in spectacles. You can get these all over the place then, put them together put them in a tube, and view what's going on in the heavens. And uh, it's an amazing thing. And since then, every time there's been an advance in telescope technology, it has brought in marvelous things. What happens, oh, the generation after him, Isaac Newton comes up with the concept of a reflecting telescope. You can probably he reasons that you can do everything with an appropriately curved mirror that you can, t- you can do with a series of lenses and you can reduce chromatic or optical effects. And this leads, a century after that or so, to the Herschel family, who really begin the systematic um, observation of deep sky objects and recording what they are. They, they don't know what they are yet, that they record their positions, how they look in the fairly large telescopes. I believe believe their largest was 48 and 72 inches aperture, which is pretty good. Uh, So, you know, this was a major achievement. And then people realized, you know, as photography, astrophotography is developing after the U.S. Civil War, What happens if you can somehow attach a camera to a telescope? It would be hard to do that to Herschel's telescope because with Newtonian reflectors, the eyepiece is on the side. You can view through it, but to hang a large camera from it would be very difficult. (laughs) But shortly after Newton, there was an obscure Dominican monk. His name is Cassegrain. And he said, one scientific paper this guy published, and he basically said, what if we could grind a secondary mirror for a reflecting telescope that had curvature to it? Then we could bounce the light back to a hole in the primary mirror, and we could view it. The eyepiece could be in the back of the telescope. You could view much more conveniently. And that's where we get Kassegrain, uh, Schmidt-Maxutov, Koday, all the different variations, and this allowed people to have photographs of the heavens, and you could buy these in atlases and, and in textbooks, and all of them, people, of course, today, routinely do this on their own. There are many, many amateurs, if you go onto any of the, of the photographic uh, databases on the web, you can see many people publish today astronomical photographs all over the place, both electronically and in print. So, of course, the telescopes of this type began to grow in a larger and larger fashion. In 1948, the largest, then-largest telescope in the world was a Cassegrain on Mount Palomar, which, of course, is the 200-inch telescope.
0: The Big Eye, as they they called
1: it. The Big Eye. And this inspired a number of people to say, what would happen if you could put this in space? And one famous astronomer whose name I should remember, but I'm shortly after 12, of the name is eluding me. Maybe it's a senior <laughs> moment. Who knows? Uh,
0: I remember James he was at proposal. Princeton. I know he was at Princeton.
1: Yes, yes.
0: A very well-known person
1: suggested do something similar to um, the 200-inch Palomar telescope. Put it in space. You could do marvelous things with it. A person who jumped on this idea and publicized it inside what was going to become NASA was the first American woman astronomer at NASA of note, Nancy Roman, who had I had the honor of meeting once, and I believe Nancy is going to have a telescope nam- named after her very
0: soon in space. Yes, she is, and I actually worked yes. when I was a consultant. To got it. I, I worked with Nancy. She was brilliant. Oh, she was wonderful. Well. She did,
1: she did something for me once. that was wonderful. I, when I started getting interested in the fact that maybe you could use a telescope like Hubble to view extrasolar planets, I was with Al Fenley at a talk she was giving in, um, at the NASA Institute for Space Studies in upst- Uptown New York, 112 in Broadway. to a small division of Goddard. NASA Goddard institute of space studies, and she was talking about putting up an occulting disk, as I think would be done. I don't think they're going to do it. I know they won't do it with Webb, but they might do it with the Nancy Roman Space Telescope. And I, I said, is there any possibility that we could do this with a celestial object? And she said, we could do it with the rim of the moon, Mm. So, Al Fenley, Al Fenley and I were often and running, and we published a number of very early papers on the way on ways of using Hubble to image what was going to become Hubble to image extrasolar planets. And they learned how to do this without a culture. And I believe of, the, of the, the many planets that have been discovered, a handful were actually imaged with Hubble. And, of course, Hubble has an aperture of about 100 inches or 250 centimeters. I think it's 98 inches, actually. It is sort of limited, and right now it's getting kind of old. I know they've had to turn off a number of instruments. <laughs> it's already gone, it doubled or tripled its expected lifespan. It has become, it has become the icon of the astronomer. So right now, you know, I expect wonderful things with uh, James Webb. I really hope it works. There are so many ways it could fail. Oh, my God, yeah. And they had something like 330 single-point failure possibilities. And the NASA team says they've been able to get around these. I'm very happy that Elon Musk has dragons, and he can always put a dragon on top of a, a Falcon Heavy and send the crew out to the LaGrange Point, yep. or some LaGrange Point, if necessary. To
0: say nothing of the Starship. Probably, yeah.
1: Oh, the this, this, this Starship could go out and have a major
0: party oh. around this thing, <laughs> certainly. By the way, the guy we're trying to remember, Lyman Spitzer. Very good. Excellent. You, did you look him up? I, look of course I looked him up. We're in the Internet age. Great. <laughs> Great. Fabulous. Fabulous. I never
1: met Spitzer, but I know he was a genius. Yep. And I hope he got... I forget how long he lived, but I hope he got to see Hubble.
0: Well, he certainly got to so see it, he got to see the orbiting astronomical observatory. And when I was at no. Goddard, I was commissioned to write a, a book on the on the evolution of the space telescope from the first OAO to Copernicus to IUE, which was the International Ultraviolet Explorer. So that's why that name Spitzer is so embarrassing. Right. I, I forgot his name, so. Me too. You're into okay. Okay. A little Wonder, a little a right. little warning y'all. always helps. Okay, tell you what, okay, Greg, great. let's let's, let's uh, pause. My guest this morning is uh, Greg Matloth, and we're having a remarkable conversation about something really amazing and dear and near to my heart, which is the coming stunning astrophysical revolution that the Webb Space Telescope to be launched in less than a week now on Christmas Eve on that incredible hyperdimensional square. You think that factored into their decision to delay the launch to the 24th? Who knows? Anyway, we're going to talk about the revolution that Webb is going to introduce if it can unfold properly all by itself a million and a half miles away. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return to a night of cosmic revolution. <laughs>
3: they've done that is because they know and have openly admitted that it's unenforceable so if they kept everyone locked down over Christmas they know that everyone's going to ignore it because you're gonna go and see your family at Christmas of course you are and they know that you've got 65 million people in the UK you can't you can't please 65 million people going to each other's houses for Christmas you can't do it there's not enough police officers so what they've done to try and keep some kind of you know appearance of power is give us those days so it's like, I know you're going around each other's houses, but we let you do it because that's better than keeping us locked down, us all doing it anyway, and them openly showing their weakness, which, which they have. They can't enforce it. And, and the police chief, chief constable has said as much that it's unenforceable. And so that's what I think people need to realize is that all these music venues could open, all these theaters could open, all these restaurants could open, all these bars could open as long as they all opened because then it's unenforceable. Hello everyone, my name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kintia, Timothy and Annetta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast.
4: with my breaking heart. Make my stand right here. Action over hope.
2: Make my stand right
4: here. Action over hope. Action. Show your face
2: around here For his master power, let you hate and fear Don't you
4: Take, on. Take my breaking
2: heart. Take my breaking heart. Take right here. The action over hope. Take my stand right here.
0: And welcome back everyone on this Sunday night. It is the nineteenth of December. About a week away less than Christmas, certainly a week away less than Christmas Eve, which NASA has now chosen to launch this incredibly overdue it's over ten years late, incredibly complicated, incredibly hyper expensive, nine Billion dollars spent to try to make this thing work all by itself over a million and a half miles away as it unfolds, unwinds, locks mirrors and mylar and struts and springs and gears and all kinds of complicated mechanical Rube Goldbergian uh, type devices into place to basically insulate it from the sun to hide it in the shadow. So it will live just above absolute zero. Now, why do they want to keep it so cold, Greg? Let's kind of hit this one on the head, okay? Okay, I think the reason for that
1: is you want to be able to not have too much thermal expansion going on. One thing with Hubble, of course, Hubble was orbiting the Earth. So on occasion, the temperature would go probably pretty close to absolute zero when it's on the night side and probably well above 100 degrees Celsius when it's on the day side. So, you know, you had to have certain – you, you had to allow a bit of time there on every orbit so there had to be uh, thermal equilibrium. Which must have been very interesting in some cases, because when they did the deep field and the ultra deep field, looking very far out in the cosmos to count galaxies, what they had to do was uh, basically keep it focused on one, keep the telescope, keep Hubble focused on one tiny segment of the sky, something less than half a degree across, for I think 90 days. So they probably had to time this very, very, very carefully. Now, where this telescope will be, it's going to be in a situation where it can be kept very, very cold all the time, because it's not orbiting the Earth. It's in a gravitationally stable position between the Earth and the Sun. So as long as, it's, as, long as you, you have a sun shield, which it Actually, does have...
0: Actually, I think it's on the opposite side. It's, it's away from the Earth, uh, you know, farther from the sun.
1: Okay.
0: About a okay. Million, okay. Uh, it, it, it's at the L2 point.
1: But right, I think you're right, not the L1 point. I and and the, the really interesting
0: number. part, the really, if I want to be very punny, cool part is, the one of the incredible complexities is they're unfolding, unfolding this multiple layers of mylar, aluminized plastic, um, about the size of a tennis court that the telescope will hide behind multi-layered, I think it's five layers. And of course, uh, you know, basically the transmission of heat in space is through electromagnetic radiation. You don't have convection. You don't have conduction. So by hiding it behind these five layers of super insulation, the size of a, again, a tennis court, imagine how big a tennis court is. And this all has to be unfolded, unwrinkled all by computer, by control little motors and stepping motors and you know struts and bars and springs i mean it, it, it's 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 a nightmare and to imagine they can actually do this successfully so yeah it's really good that musk has a spacecraft capable of going and like we did with the shuttle and hubble they can go out someday if they need to and literally have an astronaut help unfold the damn thing
1: Right, it's a, it's a great backup. Incidentally, b- before the break, when you were mentioning OAO, I almost cracked up because my first job at Colesman Instrument Corporation and then at Grumman in both in, in Long Island, well, Queens, New York, and uh, Nassau County, New York, was as photometric engineer on OAO number two and number three. Oh my! I was one of the people. In, I was one of the people in charge. With calibrating the star trackers, and my two first papers, both in applied optics, were on taking observatory measurements in the UBVRI system, where you put a filter in front of your telescope to look at it, to look at the stars, bright stars, in only selected colors, and how to come out with this information and derive um, star catalogs tailored to the spectral response of your particular, uh, of, of the photoelectric device on your particular star tracker. And I had a lot of fun with this. <laughs> One thing we used to do is we would go out and we had a Pritchard um, photometer. Since you worked on this, you may, have been, you may have seen the Pritchards. They were wonderful devices. They were what we would use to calibrate the star trackers. I would take it out at night. Sometimes we would point it at vega <laughs>
2: uh,
1: which is very, which was one of the cali- a-, a calibration star, calibrate and then we would have the device calibrated and then we would put, we would use it with the star tracker so it was a you know, at, pointed to the the simulated star uh, that would that would basically be used to calibrate the Star Tracker. And it was a lot of fun, it was very, very nice. It was a great experience. And I almost was sued because I came out of Queens College and uh, I knew all the, you know, we had had great hands-on experience in the optics labs. And I go into one of the facilities at Colesman and I'm busy setting up the experiment and the technicians are looking at me and they're getting red in the face and red in the face. And finally, one of them looked at me and said, it's a good thing it's your first job, and you're 20 years old, because you have to know something right now. Otherwise, you would have a union and grievance. Engineers don't touch
0: things. Mm. They work with their
1: minds. Technicians <laughs> put things together. You tell us. Oh,
0: my. That, that so reminds me of my first experience on, at CBS. Because I remember I was brought <laughs> down as this young, not drive behind the ears, 23-year-old to advise Walter Cronkite, Mr. Space, you know, we're going to the moon and we're orbiting the moon on Christmas Eve, remember, Apollo 8, and I heard over the intercom, you know, uh, where's Mr. Hoagland? Cronkite needs him. So I rush out on the floor of the studio and I got the whole bunch of documents and whatever, and I got three different unions furious at me because they were supposed to carry my paperwork all I was supposed <laughs> to do is walk up to the desk. Oh,
2: my God. <laughs> you know, it was, oh my it my was God. nuts,
0: you know. Yes, That's k- k- so funny. K- yeah. Now, let me ask you a question, very interesting question, which probably the only two people on the planet listening to us tonight will know the answer to this, you and me. What made the Orbiting Astronomical Observatory, which was a predecessor to Hubble, it was the first NASA space telescope. It was it had a 36-inch mirror, I believe. Um, you know, Cassegrain Telescope. Um, what made it unique in the history of telescopes, uh, either on Earth or in space? Totally unique. Okay.
1: It, turned, it turns out that the Earth's atmosphere is only partially transmissive to electromagnetic radiation from the sun. It turns out that most, except for the visual band of the spectrum and some of the radio band. Nothing passes through. So what people realized early on is we have to begin to look things in different spe- different ranges of the spectrum. And as I recall, decades later, the OAO was the first ultraviolet telescope other than the there was one on, I believe, one of the stratoscopes, one of the stratoscopes I think it was called stratospheric balloons
0: in the late It it, it was called Stratoscope and it was lifted up into the stratosphere about 120,000 feet by a huge Perkin-Elmer polyethylene balloon on a stabilized platform. Right, this was a test
1: and it demonstrated that, my gosh, you can see a lot in the ultraviolet if you can get above the lower atmosphere. And this was the first instrument to
0: do that there have been others actually it turns out Greg it was not the first group the first American group to do astronomy in space that used an ultraviolet sensor you know that this was film and uh, optics quartz optics so it would pass ultraviolet light was in fact the CIA in Project Corona And the reason I know this is because they took bizarre pictures of the moon from Earth orbit. (laughs) And there's all kinds of astonishing detail, which, of course, is the ancient structures on the moon that I talk about a great deal, that the CIA knew they were there and they picked the ultraviolet because of the scattering properties of the glass versus the surface. But they were the first government institutions, a spy agency, to loft in essence an ultraviolet telescope into space to do an astronomy observation. Interesting. Interesting. And I, 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 can, I not- can send you the pictures; they're amazing. Okay, I wasn't actually thinking in terms of the function of OAO. I was thinking of more like engineering. The, the engineering thing that made it so unique was it's the only telescope that I can remember. I've looked and looked and looked, either on Earth or in space that literally was covered. The tube was covered with a layer of porcelain like a bathtub. Mm. And it was for thermal control. They literally put an orbiting bathtub into space with a camera and and lens system in it and and mirror. And that was OAO. The the outer covering was porcelain. See the things you learn when you write a book about NASA stuff? It is. It's fabulous. fabulous. (laughs) Anyway, so I did
1: not know
0: that. Well, now you do. And and you'll never be able to unlearn it. All right. So. (laughs) All right. So we've got these series of revolutions. Talk about big telescopes on Earth in history and the revolutions that each additional capability uh, ushered into in terms of the general paradigm of who the hell are we and what are we doing in this place?
1: Okay, In about the year 1900, people were quite certain that there was only one galaxy, that was the universe, and it was centered on pretty close to where the sun is, and we were in the middle of this, and it reached out maybe 60 or 70,000 light years. And then along came the predecessor to Hubble, which is called the Mount Wilson Telescope which has an aperture, it, it still exists, although it can't see very much in Los Angeles skies now, an aperture of, of about 100 inches or 250 uh, centimeters. Yeah,
0: it's, it's, called, 90, it's, in, it's called the Hooker telescope because the guy who the paid Hooker. for it was an industrialist in the trolley business, I think, named Hooker.
2: Yeah,
1: I always relate, remembered if he was related to a Union general in the Civil War, whose name was also from
2: mm-hmm.
1: We have to check that. We have to check that. But anyway... It could be the same family. A, it, it very possibly is. There was a very gifted observer, a guy who has a very famous name. His name, of course, is Hubble. And what he did is he used this telescope to begin looking at the spectra of some of the fuzzy objects that the Herschel family had discovered, and before them, Messier, a century before that, had looked at. And they thought that these were just clouds in the sky, But all of a sudden, they realized, as they looked at the Doppler shift, they looked at the fact that the, you know, the spectral lines are signatures of various elements. But their position in the spectra can change if something's moving away from us. They were able to demonstrate that these fuzzy objects were moving away. Yeah,
0: the familiar Doppler. So called Doppler. Shift. The Doppler
1: effect. <laughs> and what happened is the far as he got he looked further and further out, they were moving faster. So Hubble concluded in the nineteen twenties that the universe was expanding. And this initially freaked out Albert Einstein. Because Albert Einstein, who was in many ways a follower of Spinoza, of Luke Spinoza, people say Albert Einstein was an atheist physicist. That's nonsense. He was not an atheist. What he believed is that consciousness, that deity, in fact, was combined with the universe. They were the same thing. And he figured that the universe, therefore, you're looking at the body of God. It's stable general relativity initially did not, he did not believe that the universe could be expanding. And it turned out that the guy, there was a Roman Catholic priest at the Vatican Observatory, oh, his name, Lamatre. Lamatre and also a Jewish guy named Friedman who did this independently, who demonstrated that relativity, general relativity, so a perfectly stable universe would not work. It would it would, it would would be on the knife edge. You either have to have a contract. More like or a razor blade. Universe, <laughs> a razor blade. So what Einstein did is he threw in a fudge factor called the cosmological constant, thinking he didn't like doing this because this was his perfect work. And of course, the cosmological constant has come back to us today, to explain the fact that the universe's expansion seems to be speeding up so it's amazing how these ideas work and develop and then another guy who did something and this was a very interesting telescope less less than a decade after this um, Percival Lowell had been a he came from a railroad family in the U.S. And he decided to end his life building a a private observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona, and using this observatory to map the canals of Mars, which you now know today were illusory. But that's still okay, because he had the telescope, he had the reputation. And people learned around 1910, 1920, that there were slight perturbations to the orbit of Neptune, and they hypothesized there would be Planet X out there. So Lowell hired a bright young guy who only had about bachelor's degree
0: From Kansas, and he was Dorothy.
2: <laughs> from,
1: and he was right exactly from Kansas. He was a farm kid. Yep. And, but he was one of those. Who built his own six-inch reflecting telescope. Yeah, in the farm. And he comes in. Clyde Tombaugh. And using a blink comparator, when you basically, on, on this telescope, you take. I used a blink comparator when I, in my one year at Wesleyan in 1969, late 69 to 70. It's a wonderful device. One, you take two pictures a day apart of the same segment of the sky. One is a photographic positive, one's a photographic negative. <clears throat> then you look at them together. At the same time, you adjust the lights, so the light is the same for both of them. And if there is a streak, something's moving. And he did this with extreme accuracy, and he discovered the dwarf planet Pluto, because we didn't know it was a dwarf planet then. It was devices like Hubble and, and the very large um, terrestrial telescopes, which have originated about the time that Hubble did, that demonstrated that what we thought was a single object. Pluto was really two: Pluto and its moon Chiron and Pluto is actually an object which is smaller considerably smaller than our moon but because of the second object orbiting at Chiron we know that it is um, it appeared to be one earth-sized object to people like Tom Bell and other people who checked him out so this has been remarkable and then Along comes the use of Hubble and these other and these these other large terrestrial telescopes and um, people start wondering about can we actually detect planets circling other stars <laughs> and a person two people who some people say they wasted their lives it's a sad story. Peter van der Kamp and several astronomers at Slol. Observatory in Swarthmore, uh, Pennsylvania, Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania in the Appalachian Mountains. And what they did was they spent 30 years looking at the second nearest star, Barnard star, as it streaks across the sky. It's the fastest moving, highest top of motion star in the, in the cosmos.
0: It's a, a little, it's a little red dwarf, about one-tenth the mass of the sun, and maybe right. one... And they figured... Ten thousands is brightness.
1: And they figured if it had... If there was a planet there, a large planet, it might cause a little wiggle. And lo, lord, lo and behold, they discovered the wiggle. And they published their data. And then the other people, years later, they figured, that, of course, they had to validate this. So... They, they didn't have an observing sequence like that at any one institution. They said, let's combine plates from Wesleyan, where I had been, from, out from oh, uh, Yale Observatory in New Haven, from probably five or six other institutions. This was done by Gatewood, Gatewood and Eichhorn, one of whom was in Florida, one I think in Georgia. And they found no planet. And they went back and they found what had happened is in the middle of the observation run by, by Sarah and Peter, the telescope had been renovated and the lens had been put in, the, the primary lens had been put in slightly differently. And this, of course, caused the apparent effect. And of course, it must have been heartbreaking, but what it did is it turned on other people and In um, 1992, I had the opportunity of predicting what was going to happen. But at that point, because of the Apollo layoffs and everything that followed it, I was working as a purely adjunct professor. I wasn't full-time anywhere. I didn't have tenure. And I was consulting. And as such, I wasn't going to challenge the establishment. I had published with Gene the Starflight Handbook, and I get a call phone calls and somebody says, well, hello, this is Greg Matloff. And I said, yep, I would like you to help me on a, as a consultant, an unpaid consultant on a science fiction novel. Would you be willing to do it? And I said, well, yeah, but I have to know your name. And he <laughs> said, my name is Boz Aldrin.
0: Oh, my God. And I, said, ah. and I
1: said, I said, wait a minute. You know, <laughs> a lot of people can say that and may, I may, may not be true. I need proof. He said, here is a phone number. Call this phone number. It's going to go, you're going to go through an appropriate switchboard. They will connect with me. It was Buzz. Wow. And Buzz is an amazing person. When I was doing this work, what he really wanted me to do, this was for a book he did with John Bonds called Encounter with Tiber. <clears throat> he liked the work I had done on solar sail starships, photonic starships. And he wanted me to design too, And it was amazing to be with those because we can met I, can him. Can I he, ask
0: you an embarrassing question? Yeah. Why didn't he want to pay you?
1: I think this is because he didn't pay any of his consultants.
2: Hmm. He
1: figured the celebrity would be enough.
2: He did take
1: us out to eat, though. <laughs> he, and I, This is one thing I really... This was, I learned the power of celebrity in this society. He took me and my wife. He was with his second wife, Lois, at the time. All right. They took us out to the Plaza to the Plaza Hotel, major hotel in New York. We go into the Palm Room, and other people start pointing at him, <laughs> and he gets upset. He said, he looks at a waiter who says, "You see that room over there? I want that opened." for me and my guests. And by the way, my name is Buzz Aldrin. You never saw people move that quickly to get a table <laughs> ready. It was remarkable. It took me about 40 seconds. I wish I had been timing it. Anyway, after I developed, after I went through the analysis of, his two, of the two ships that they needed, he um, said, okay, I know that you got your PhD doing planetary atmospheres. I need, John and I need, in this book, we have to have a Jupiter-like planet at one astronomical unit at Earth's distance from a sun-like star, in this case, Alpha Centauri A. Do you you think the atmosphere will be stable for billions of years? And I said, well, the planetologists, the orthodox planetologists...
0: I'll tell you what, hold it there. This is a great tease. My guest this morning is Dr. Greg Matloff. You just found out first here that Buzz Aldrin hired him to be a technical consultant to his fictional novel, after he came back from the moon, called Encounter with Tiber. Gosh, have I got all kinds of questions. It's kind of like when I got the phone call from uh, Cronkite's folks and they said, we'd like to help you help us go to the moon. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We'll return to Greg's fascinating story about the technical background for the star system in Buzz Aldrin's Encounter with Tiber when we return.
5: Huddland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Thought radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
0: And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, December 19th, just days away from the winter solstice, when the Earth and the sun align with the four million solar mass hole at the center of the galaxy. And in the hyperdimensional physics model, again measured, all kinds of very interesting things happen. What's happening here on the other side of midnight is that Greg Matiloff is in the middle of a story where he is hired to be a consultant to Buzz Aldrin to design a star system for the second man to walk on the moon. Greg, the floor is yours. Hello? You're on.
1: Okay, I have to, I have to put the earbuds back in. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
0: that, that was a funny little earbuds, I... yes.
1: Okay, there it is. Okay, so what Buzz said is, I know you have your doctorate in basically planetary atmospheres. Here is a challenge. Go back into the theory. See if there's an equation that we can use to demonstrate. Is it true that an atmosphere of a Jovian planet will evaporate if it's close
0: to the star? Okay, let me stop you there. Hang on, let me stop you there because we have to give people the proper context this conversation took place in what 6970 no this the conversation took place in 92 and 93 okay because something like that. because the first exoplanet 51 pegasi was not announced until 95 and right, the, and right. the, and the astronomical community and mass had no idea of a class of planets or star systems called hot jupiters where instead of the Jupiter-sized planet hanging out half a billion miles from the star, like the, like like Jupiter, it literally orbits inside the orbit of the planet Mercury in our solar system. So this problem of evaporation of atmospheres on Jovian planets circling closer than the Earth is not an academic one, but back then it was totally unknown. So you were at the cutting edge of a frontier calculation. Could this be a stable... System, right?
1: Without knowing
0: it, without knowing and anything, yeah.
1: Without knowing anything, so I took him up on his dare. <laughs> you do that with Adventure, like yes, fun. yes. You take you- them up on their dare. Yes, you do. I found, I found a textbook, a source book, an Introduction to Space Science, and the people who had collaborated with on it were mentors of mine, on my, you know, people who I had worked with. There was, was Robert Jastrow, who had mm. been the head, of, the head of the Institute. An old State friend of studies. mine,
0: Bob Jastrow, yes. Right. It
1: was Dick, Dick Stewart, who basically hired me as a, my first stint as a NASA consultant on basically the Earth's atmosphere, and Ixviac Rasool. And in this book, there is an equation that they say is a heuristic equation. It is not rigorous. And it talks about the lifetime of a planetary atmosphere, it has all the parameters in it, so I took Jupiter, was this based on
0: Gene, in, was it based on genes, Sir James Jean's work back in the 1920s?
1: It might be. I would have to go back and check the references, which it, it's possible that upon that. Because I remember
0: certain, that he came but, out with the first calculations of if if you had a, if you had a world like the moon and it had an atmosphere, how long would it take to evaporate? If you had a planet right. like the Earth at the same distance, how long? In other words, he did those very pioneering calculations of you know, escape paths and mean-free Boltzmann temperatures and all that stuff. So these guys must have built on Gene's original ideas to give a more sophisticated kind of right. arm-waving model.
1: It was a, definitely an arm-waving model. <laughs> and later on, I actually had a couple of students who I was mentoring them in a science fair project at, the city, at City College. And they went back to the literature. They couldn't find a derivation. So these guys really knocked it together. But I looked at this, I went through it, and lo and behold, Buzz was right. So he thanked me, and I then said, well, should I publish this? And I gave in to fear. I said, I can't, you know, I'm a consultant. I am a... Non tenured adjunct professor teaching all over the place. I really got cold feet. A year and a half after that, maybe less. Jeff Marcy at Berkeley and his colleague in
0: Sweden, I think,
1: guy whose last name I. Suspect, wasn't
0: it? Wasn't it Switzerland? I thought it was Switzerland. Maybe
1: it's Switzerland. You're probably right. They began to publish about fifty one Pegasus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were a couple of other stars. And one, I saw them do a dog and pony show at an IAU conference on the island of Capri in 1996. One would get up and say, my team has discovered this. The other one would get up right after that and say, my team has confirmed this. And they'd <laughs> it was do you,
0: let, let me give you another parenthetical note here, because Keith Morgan, who's our, you know, resident engineer used to work for a guy named Ted Koppel. And in my book, Ted Koppel's biggest decision, his team's biggest decision with Nightline was when they decided to take the entire crew and go up to the Harvard College Observatory the night or the week of the announcement of 51 Pegasi and hang out in that observatory and to a whole half hour on the first known exoplanet and Marcy's calculations and observations and all that. They devoted a half hour of mainstream news to an obscure, astronomical, amazing paradigm shift event.
2: Right, and just, which is
0: amazing.
1: And what happened then, of course, is this really, really opened, it opened the floodgates. And the funniest thing that I experienced with it was my first year, in I, I think it was 2016. As an advisor to Project Starshot, I'm out in, at NASA Ames, we're sitting, all of us together at a table, and people are talking about taking these little, tiny, thin sails, sending them by lasers to Alpha Centauri, and Avi Loeb from Harvard, and Pete Warden, who, I should say maybe General Pete Warden, who used to also, or he directed the Star Wars program, well, before
0: uh, that, he was an Apollo way. astronaut, and I believe he was the command. No, no, no.
1: This a, that's, no, no. That's a different. I'm sorry, it's not Pete Warden. It's uh, Pete. Um, I forget his last name. Anyway, anyway, he be, he became the director of um, uh, NASA Ames.
2: Right. I know.
1: I know Pete, but his name eludes me at the moment. But that's like his last name. But anyway, what they came out and said, well, I think we have to change direction a little bit because it's just been reported a very solid observation from the European team. And we're going out there for the talk about it. There is a a planet in the habitable zone of Proxima Centauri, a red dwarf star. And this totally flipped us out. Mm -hmm. There was one guy there on the team and his name of French origin, his name also eluded me. He says, you know what this means? If you go to a beach and you turn a rock over, you turn a rock over and there was a big bug under it, you're pretty sure there's going to be a lot of big bugs on that beach. And of course he was right. We now have found Earth-sized planets circling in the habitable zones of many, many, many stars. Well, okay, but what does it mean? What does this mean for humanity? It means a great deal, I think, because there was another space telescope that was launched in 2013. And I have been waiting for this with my work on stellar consciousness, because I, I don't want to get too off off track now. No, we'll, we'll, wanted... we, we, we will get to stellar consciousness
0: in the next okay, uh, hour but, or so. Okay.
1: Right, but okay, but I, I was waiting for confirmation, which I got. My assumptions
0: that I, that I put into that
1: talk, into that field, but it discovered something else too. This, this is Gaia.
0: This this new t- new space telescope. It is
1: named Gaia, and the purpose of Gaia was to get accurate observations, position and motion observations for one billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Mm. And it was very funny. There was a... When the data started coming in, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Denton A. Bell, and people like that, at the, the Hayden Planetarium, which is now the Rose Earth and Space mm. Center, put on a, an event and on the, on the ceiling, on the dome, they showed the, the billion stars from Gaia. And I asked them, I said, what happens if Gaia discovers another 10 stars? And they looked at me and said, the dome will
0: collapse.
2: <laughs> and of course, it
0: was, it was hysterical.
2: <sighs> but anyway.
0: Well, Gaia, course, by the way, is a successor mission to an earlier uh, astrometry astr- 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 called Hipparchus. Who I'll is In the uh, Greek you know lore history is supposed to be the first guy that kind of democratized astronomy. made the first star map, right. that kind of thing. Right. So this right. idea of that. very precise distances, and if you measure the distance twice per year, you know as the Earth orbits the sun, you get what's called parallax, meaning right. you get distances that are accurate. The distances, most stars now are like inaccurate to like 10 to 15 percent. These satellites now with telescopes dedicated to stellar positions can get distances down to 1%. And that's an amazing revolution. Again, an astronomical new telescope technology that's given us a whole new set of windows to the, to the universe in which we live. Right.
1: And what, well, anyway, people started to analyze this data. And I sent you a paper on the second data release of about a bit more than a million stars by a team at St. Petersburg
3: in Russia.
1: And as well as validating Peringo's list continuity that we'll talk about later, they come up with a couple of very interesting results. One, stars in the galactic vicinity of the sun, meaning out more than a thousand light years, are in general more than a billion years older than our sun. They discover that, which is fabulous. And at about the same time- So wait, wait, group, you
0: mean, when you have the sun and we've got an age of about four and a half billion years, but it, lives, but it lives in a neighborhood of much older relatives all clustered around it in this spiral arm. Right. Wow. And which means,
1: and then it becomes even more exciting because they're looking at, another group was looking at motions at close encounters of stars to the sun, and what they do is they demonstrate that at intervals of about a few hundred thousand years, a sun like star passes within a light year or so within of the sun, which means within the within the comet belt and This was exciting for both me and Jim Bensard and other researchers because what it meant is that our current the two basic interstellar travel technologies that people look at today are for people that seem to be at the verge of feasibility, some type of explosive fusion device, or a hypersen solar sail deployed as close to the sun as you can get. And what, with these, you could get a human population, a small human population, to the nearest star within a thousand years. But what if the nearest star was at one quarter of that distance? 200 years, 250 years, all of a sudden the lifetime of the United very... States. So when you start saying, okay, most of these stars are a billion years or more older than the sun, they, many of them come close to the sun very, very frequently. And this is, this is by the way, a pessimistic because Gaia has a magnitude limitation. It doesn't do very well with the cataloging, the small, low-mass red dwarf stars.
0: I think it's a relatively small telescope, maybe like a meter. It is.
1: It is I think it's a bit more than that, but it is small. So it, it really can't do too much with the red dwarfs, but the M-class stars. So there's going to be many, many more close stellar encounters now, which means if life evolves frequently and if life in some places develops to the point of technology, if a technological civilization can overcome things like nuclear war, climate change, these are called the great filters. If it can get through that, all you need is one To colonize at these speeds, only traveling during an encounter. How long does it take to cover most of the galaxy? Thirty-five million years. And man, you know,
0: that's nothing. nothing.
1: That is absolutely nothing. So, which means it is, if we don't find artifacts in the solar system, there is something very, very wrong with something we're talking about. Maybe life. Kills itself off 99.99999% of the time. Maybe we are a divine production or an accident in one out of a gazillion. Chance. Well, of course, one out of as, a gazillion cases.
0: As this audience knows, you know from our work and many others we've had on the show, we have found artifacts all over the damn solar system, and NASA just hasn't told anybody yet. Right. All
2: our
1: I think, you know, this is this is going to become more and more evident. And in other words, we're
0: we're at the knife edge of another huge revolution, a paradigm shift of cataclysmic proportions, like right around the corner. And one
1: journal, which is really getting into this in a big way, right away, is the International Journal of uh, Astrobiology. Biology. They contacted me to do a – and they're doing a special uh, edition, a special issue on a class of interstellar probes called von Neumann machines. What a von Neumann machine is, you launch it, it goes to the star, it gets
0: there, it produces copies of itself, they fly off to other stars. Did you ever see Arthur Clarke's sequel with Peter Himes to 2001, one two
1: thousand I saw, I saw I did see that one, and that's, and that's what causes Jupiter exactly,
0: to the von Neumann become machines. a
1: star. Von Neumann yep, yep, yep. Arthur, Arthur Clarke jumped on the idea. <laughs> Excuse me. Any, anyway, uh, I, they asked me to do propulsion, and I spend my time on propulsion, but I said, I want to get a little away from this and also talk about where to look. And I know that Avi Loeb with Ed Turner at Princeton, and me, working with uh, Tony Martin in Britain, had suggested the Kuiper Belt. Jim Benford has been talking about was in California in the Berkeley, I think it's more the Berkeley, not the Stanford area, but I, I think it's Berkeley, has been talking about the possibility of looking for this in near-Earth asteroids. They might be a good place to look for artifacts. But there was a Russian guy, and I didn't know this. They made sure that I quoted him when I revised the paper, who said, we look on the moon. And other people have said, artifacts can be quite small. We might look at something the size of our Neumann probe, the size of our contemporary spacecraft, a few meters. Mm -hmm. And we might be able to detect these. We might also be, be able to detect larger things. So I'm, I'm looking at all this, and, you know, if it's not there, there's a problem. And I can understand the reticence of governments about this, because and the reticence of military establishments, because a military establishment, you know, if this is true, and if they can, if they can survive, once again, we can, we, we can design space habitats today It can be relatively self-sustaining. There's no reason why if you have a big enough mirror, you couldn't put these things in the Kuiper belt. There's no reason why there couldn't be civilizations very close to us. Mm -hmm. This completely throws away one of the arguments against UFOs being spacecraft. And that argument, there's a reasonably famous uh, radio astronomer. I won't mention him by name because he might be embarrassed, with the SETI Institute, who regularly debunked UFO reports to say, how could so many come here? Oh, I know who you're talking
0: about, and my audience does too. Who is it? Seth (laughs) Shostak.
1: That's exactly who it is. Yeah, of course. I didn't want to... to Seth deserves to be
0: embarrassed, okay? (laughs) Because
1: when you talk about disinformation on possible colonization of the solar system. If you have an advanced civilization that close, 30 astronomical, 40 astronomical units away, they could be doing anything
0: they want. It's the 800-pound gorilla story. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, l- look I at it this does... way. The Kuiper Belt, again, we're talking mainstream astronomy here, folks, is populated by objects. We know a few of them. We actually flew by one, Ultima Thule, which was I renamed. Um, We we know they're incredibly rich in organics, in carbon, in ices, in all the stuff you need to live. And the only thing that is needed, again, in the mainstream to make it work so you can set up a totally independent, self-sustaining civilization would be energy. Well, you build yourself a big enough mirror in zero gravity, you get all the damn energy from the sun you could want. And if you conquer fusion, again, mainstream thinking... You're the 800 pound gorilla. You can live off the right. land in the in the Kuiper Belt forever. And the neat part is, if you want to think about hiding, is neat. With current technological telescopic technology, you'd be very hard to be detectable from Earth until Webb. Right,
1: and what happened when they when they realized that New Horizons was still alive after passing Pluto. <laughs> Excuse me. (laughs) This is what happened to my lecture for a long time. Thank you. (laughs) What happened is they wanted to find a second destination. They knew these objects were out there. So what did they do? They enlisted thousands of astronomers, radio professional and amateur, and they used Hubble. They said, we'd have to look at a number of stars close to the trajectory of... New Horizons to look for an occultation. And Hubble was able to verify this. They were able to find and pinpoint the location of a particular object 30 kilometers across the sub. And this is Alta or what is it, MU69, I think, is its other designation. It now has a new name also, which I I forget.
0: Yeah, me too. I liked Thule, yeah, regardless of the German connotations, because it, it basically gave it this ultimate frontier feel, and now it's kind of dissolved into where we can't even remember the new name. So
1: I know Mike doesn't play this game. So you know, so so what I started doing is, of course, along came COVID, and uh, like many, like many, many other people. My wife and I. I happen to have a lovely wife. We have a beautiful house, fully renovated. I'm able to teach as, a, as an adjunct from home, but Okuni is opening officially in another month. And I don't know if, I, I may take the semester off because of Omicron, but I will decide that. But anyway, I had plenty of time because I wasn't doing my hour commute to the college every, twice a week. I wasn't going out as much. So I started doing a lot of reading. Mm. And one book I read, which I had located up in my shelf, was a book by an astronomer named Jacques Vallée. Oh, Jacques. I, I, I know Jacques, yeah. friend I've never met him. I mean, he's French. I've never met him. I know his colleague, Eric Davis, who I know you know. And Eric has collaborated with Jacques. Jacques is the role model for the guy, in Close Encounters exactly, the Exactly,
0: exactly, yes, who, yes. Who gets the
1: music going, says, a laws, our laws, and it starts playing automatically, and the world ship comes down, and that's it. But anyway, he published a book called Dimensions, and Dimensions is very interesting, and it really shook me up a bit, because what he talks about is the abduction phenomenon, the UFO abduction phenomenon, in my experiences with the UFO abduction phenomenon, means maybe it's a psychological thing. The only person I know who claims she's been abducted a lot—I'm not going to mention her name—was trained as a corporate lawyer, and she these experiences, whatever they are, encouraged her to change careers to become a rock singer, uh, a psychic. And mm. periodically she will also go back to law when she needs money. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, I found out
0: Sounds like someone I should
1: interview. Her. Well I I would have to ask her. Yeah, of uh, course. Also. Of course. But, but but anyway anyway, when she was young she let she let us both know about this last time we saw her, she was psychologically abused by her mother. Now a few years before that, my wife, C. Bangs, who was an artist and my collaborator in many of these ventures, was in an art show in Chelsea, one of the art centers in New York, and a woman visiting the show looked at her work and said, I'm putting together a something on interstellar contact, and it's going to be in a center a former movie theater in Hoboken, New Jersey, where Frank Sinatra used to perform incidentally. And um, it's going to be called Culture of Contact. Mm. So we went there, and us hanging her work. We both noticed that all of the other art has little fetus-like creatures, gray creatures with extended heads and big eyes. We looked at each other and said, oh, oh, we both realized what we were in for. So I'm on a panel with a science fiction writer and a psychologist, and we're talking about UFO UFO cases. <laughs> and the two UFO cases that I had experienced were basically easy to throw out. The first one was the Apollo 13 urine dump. I, I was at, at Wesleyan at, at the time observing, and I set the telescope up to observe this. It was really to send a crystalline cloud, an artificial comet, through the Earth's magnetic field. And basically, uh, the whole point of this was to see what what would happen with with Earth's magnetism. But the phone rings, and the guy on the other end says, I'm observing a UFO 30 degrees above the southern horizon, about as bright as a second magnitude star. And I said to him, we're on it. It's a urine dump from Apollo 13. (laughs) I'm looking at it now, and I can see Apollo in it. And he got very quiet and said, You are in on the conspiracy oh, and he slammed the phone my. down. Well, okay, so it indicated people like conspiracies. The second case was in nineteen ninety. <laughs> I was back in New York and with with and she is working as an artist, a consulting artist for the Department of Parks and Recreation. And I am their consulting astronomer.
0: I tell you what, we're at the and bottom I, of the hour. Hold it there. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Perfect.
2: Perfect. I'll Great point.
0: My guest this morning is Dr. Greg Matloff, who is a font of fascinating stories. Gosh. And our, our uh, careers and our lives and the people we know have overlapped so many ways. Fascinating. You are on the other side of midnight. We're going to get to the Webb Telescope and the major revolutions that we're thinking it might introduce But he's already introduced one that I hadn't thought of, which is Webb can see if there's somebody living in the Kuiper Belt and using energy. Because if they are, they must be radiating furiously in the infrared and Webb, a 21-meter-sized, I'm sorry, 21-foot-sized mirror. That will be as bright as as a candle, you know, 20 feet away. We can't miss them if they're there. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. everyone to the other side of midnight, the land of extraterrestrial ghost stories tonight. Greg's telling us about uh, an art exhibition involving UFOs and abductions and little gray beings and then, you know, a a very kind of mundane uh, urine dump from an Apollo mission in the Earth's magnetosphere which someone got all excited about, them. oh, it's a UFO. See, the problem is that there are IFOs and UFOs, and real UFOs are much more interesting, as uh, we have described on this show and demonstrated apropos of our first transmissions to Oumuamua on the night of December 4th, right above the antenna. Anyway, Greg, please continue.
1: Okay, so, so any, anyway, the second UFO... Uh, or I think we I should really call it an IFO. <clears throat> three nurses are coming home at night after the night shift from their hospital in Queens on a bus riding along Casino Boulevard. <laughs> they happen to look over at Casino, at Casino park and they notice over the lake three lights. Now who should they call about this? well, Maybe you call the police. Maybe you call uh, air traffic control. No, they called in a professional ufologist. There are such people. This guy comes in, (laughs) and he basically projects. He says, well, they're not really over the lake. He does something totally unscientific. He projects to the other side of the lake. So they're wrong in that respect, which means he's taking observations and then he's cooking them, which you really can't do. He goes to the other side of the lake. He finds a few dead spots in the park, and he says, this is obviously where they landed.
2: Mm. He
1: analyzes the dead spots, and he sees there's a strange rock there. It's an igneous rock called diorite, and it comes from Aruba. What's it doing here? And then he takes out a compass and he sees that all of the lampposts near this area wait, wait. How- are magnetized.
0: Wait a minute, This rock comes from Aruba, the little island in the Caribbean?
1: Yes. How yes. do we know but that? It, it, well, this, apparently it is a major source of diorite, a, a major source of oh. diorite. <laughs> he was right on that because I had that checked with a geologist. But okay, so the Parks Department said, it's obviously nonsense, <laughs> but... <laughs> The local press, the Queen's press, is having a field day. And what they, what they do is, and I learned this, these little newspapers, you go into the supermarket, in many cases, you find them for free. And they regional newspapers. And they're supported by advertising. But if their circulation goes sky high, they're advertising revenue also goes sky high. So they start devoting more and more time to this. And I finally go out there with a ranger, a park ranger. And we verify, well, first of all, we do a little research. We say, yes, they're diorite. But what is diorite used for? It's used in tennis courts. What's going on in Casino Park? The tennis courts are being renovated. (laughs) So obviously, Somebody is transferring dirt. <clears throat> now, if you work for Parky, if you're a Parky, <clears throat> which I was as a consultant, <clears throat> you don't announce that you killed some grass. If something falls off a truck, let it be a UFO. <laughs> That's obviously what happened. Dialyte, that they were moving from one place
0: to another, mm. fell
1: off their cart.
0: Does this UFO the guy other- have a name? Can we talk about him? He... I
1: believe, if I'm correct, it was Kelly. You know, you can look this up. Look up Casino Park UFO, okay, because okay. I, did, I did the report on it. It's still on watch. Because this kind of I've really these... shoddy
0: investigation deserves to be out. Oh, outed. it's
1: horrible. It really is horrible, and it, it demolishes what should be a serious feel. And I hope it's going to get more serious. But anyway, we also looked at the magnetism. He was absolutely correct all of the lampposts near the landing site, alleged landing site, were magnetized. Then we walked through the park, and lo and behold, they're all magnetized. So obviously, the UFOs come back to magnetize
0: (laughs) every night, or... Are these 19th century cast-iron lampposts?
1: Yes, yes, which probably have a transformer in them, which would have a magnetic field, of course. Yeah, of course. So through a rectifier. So we had fun with that. But then... What happened is at the conclusion of this, the local papers published one column summarizing my report, and they had given the ufologists...
0: Party (laughs) poofers.
2: They had given it
1: weeks and weeks and weeks of of coverage. So it demonstrated to me that that local press sometimes
0: isn't going to give you real news. Well, in the internet era, we call this clickbait. And the and yeah, the outrageous and was, nonsense on YouTube, all the fake you know artifacts on other planets and UFOs and I mean the signal to noise ratio has gone to zero.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly, and it's funny. So so anyway, but but the, in the middle of this talk, I talk about my UFO experience and I tell them that I'm open to it. You know, this is what I've had, and a woman gets up and says. Maybe one of you can help me. This was on a panel. I have been abducted six times, seven times. I have produced children. When I am able to see the children, I can never take them home. I can never have proof of this. So all of us are very understanding. What year was this? We don't have an explanation. What, what, what year? It must, have been, it must have been something like 2010, 2011. Oh, okay. Okay. 2012. It's a, this is fairly recent. Yeah, this one, yeah. <clears throat> you know, where, where the culture of contact uh, occurred
2: <clears throat>
1: at uh, in this mo- former movie theater in Hoboken, and later on, I'm standing next to the psychologist in the urinal, taking a little break <laughs> at the urinal, <clears throat> and he says to me, "Greg, you handled that very well, but I want to tell you something from a psychological point of view." I run across this all the time. In many, many cases, when women are abducted, not abducted, when women are abused as children, they do something with this knowledge. If they've been sexually abused by a family member who's supposed to be protecting them, they do something with it, and that's where some of these phenomenon come from. And I would bet a fair amount of money that this woman was abused as a a child or an adolescent. So that stuck with me. And I didn't think much more about the abduction phenomenon until last year. Then I, because of COVID, I've been doing a lot of reading. I've I've never read this much in my life. (laughs) I've also been very productive in terms of research papers, some of which we'll talk about later. And um, I picked up a book by Jacques Vallée called Dimensions. Not dementia, Dimensions, like in four or five dimensions.
2: Right, right. <clears throat> uh,
0: would you like to take a forth. break? Would you like to take a break and take some water? Have your wife bring you some water. I've,
1: I've been I've been doing it every thirty minutes, taking a sip. But that's well, okay if you, I need you, it.
0: You, you, you need, need I'll to take now. more. Thanks. You know, as someone who speaks a lot, doing it. you know, I, I never okay. come down to do this show without having water sitting right by me. Because you'd be amazed right. how in three hours you need to drink a lot of water. And, and okay, the... I know
1: that. I have, it right, I have it right next to me. I'm going to take a sip right now. I've left the bed.
0: Mm. Okay. Delicious. <laughs>
1: okay. I keep it, of course, next to the bed. I made sure it was filled. So anyway, what he does is he looks at the current UFO abduction phenomenon, and then he goes back through history, and he talks about, fairy abductions. Now, the basic case of a fairy abduction is that somebody is out wandering and he comes across these little people and they ask him to join the circle and he does that. He dances, he eats with them and then he comes out and years have passed. And he says, this is a correlation with the current abduction phenomenon. We're looking at the same thing. He looks at miracles every religion be it judaism be it christianity be it buddhism be it islam has miracles and the concept of a miracle is very interesting it's an apparent local violation of physical law he talks about lourdes <clears throat> he mentions the fact that yes people there when when the virgin was talking about meeting the Virgin Mary, we're noticing a suspension in time. Nobody else saw this. He mentions the fact that at a certain battle in um, Joshua's army, when they invade, when they leave Egypt and they're invading what's going to become Israel, it looks like the sun has stopped its motion. And what he's saying is, okay, one thing, and he doesn't come out and quote Arthur C. Clarke, but Arthur C. Clarke has a statement that Bob Forward uses. One of my
0: favorite and, laws of Arthur's, yes.
1: And I'm sure you know this. It says any sufficiently advanced technology will appear to be
0: magic. Yep, yep. Third law.
1: So third law. So he comes to this, and he, he also talks about the fact that just before the dawn of aviation, People start seeing airships and reporting there are airship events, large dirigibles. Of course, there's no such thing has been constructed yet. So what's going on? <clears throat> and what seems to be the case, according to him, is that we are being manipulated. He does not like this conclusion. Well, he do you says, remember, the, the,
0: did, did you get to read the follow-on book that he wrote called Messengers of Deception, which is my I favorite I have not
1: read that one.
0: Read that one because I think that's what's also going on. We are being manipulated, and then there's another yep. author you should check in with. His name is Charles Fort. Does that name ring yes, a Yes, I
4: read him.
1: I read him as a youngster. And what Fort did <clears throat> is he found anomalous events from all over the world, yep. going back at least to the year to the nineteenth century. And I think he published this in the 1920s or 30s, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it was basically the same thing. And
0: he said something, we are,
1: are we property?
0: Yeah, exactly. And That's his key line, are we property?
1: So, you know, then along comes our dear friend Avi Loeb. And when uh Ua Uwa, Uwa, and I really wish we
0: could call it Rama, <laughs> came to the solar system,
4: <coughs> I, you
0: need more you water need, You need more water Take the time I will, I will take it Come on Take, take, okay, take the time, take my the time. I'm
1: alright Okay What he does Is I'm, I'm going to take a, take
0: a sip You're correct Take more than a I'm sip i used to like um, I, We have I'm plenty run, of I'm time run
1: of, I've run out of water then. I can
0: <laughs> I, okay. I, I can fill I can whistle You know Dixie I can Do all kinds of things I can play the, You know The, the five tone strum. <laughs> Close
2: encounter. <laughs> That's very good. I wish I
0: could do that.
2: I mean,
1: anyway, when to, to see the way that he's been able to shoot down the people who've critiqued him, and some of the arguments are ridiculous. One of, one guy publishes something in the, on the in the physics archive saying it can't possibly be an alien space probe because it has been flying. For hundreds of thousands of years, and I look at that and say, "What nonsense if, it's been fly, if it came locally, if it came from the Kuiper belt, it's been flying for maybe five years it's that long.
0: but so give me a break. well, but you even no if it's proof. been flying for a very long time, remember, it's right. there it's was AI. There, there was there was a concept called a bracewell probe. We now know we can see real AI. On the horizon, we're not quite there yet, but we're almost there. So you put these together with materials developments, we could create something. Uh, remember that the, the current science says that a Muamua was much smaller, probably than than initial estimates based on the light curve, and it appeared to be right. highly reflective because Spitzer,
2: right.
0: another infrared telescope predecessor of Webb, found no infrared emission or re-emission meaning it has to be smaller than a certain size so you put all that data together it's on the order of maybe an aircraft carrier tumbling yeah exactly it's highly reflective and so anybody who says that even we couldn't build something if we attached a fusion engine to it to do what omooamua has done is nuts they're behind right. the curve and if- and, of course, you know, to demonstrate that
2: its
1: acceleration close to the sun is almost exactly what you would expect if it had a light sail. And, of course, it was performing my favorite maneuver, which is now called David Brin, one who named it, a sun
0: maneuver. Ah, yes. yes. Very close. <clears throat> and, you know, so that made me very... Although that maneuver is very, very old. Very oh old. yes. Sure. sure. I'm trying to in remember fact. who first wrote about it.
1: It goes back I to classic. It, 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 it might be Zambler, because when I first published the papers with Gene Malove on it, before Starflight Handbook, this was in 81, 82, and I know Lou Friedman and Chelsea Uphoff had been thinking about it also. Um uh, there was a Russian team, Elena Polykova at Petersburg. Now at St. Petersburg again. It's going back to being <laughs> satisfied. <clears throat> she basically woke me up in her monograph on it, but she also lets me know that Frederick Zandler had mentioned this in the, and he was Georgian, not not from where they grow peaches, where they breed vodka instead, from the nineteen late twenties or early thirties. So, you know, Jane and I just had updated it, <clears throat> which we, I'm very glad about. And um, But it, it demonstrates that these ideas have been around a long time.
0: It's like, you know... Indeed, yes. In, yeah.
1: uh, <clears throat> in their initial studies <clears throat> of um, extrasolar probes called the Tau mission, NASA talks about Powered gravity assists for both the planets and the sun. And I do that with Gene and later with Kelly Parks. And, that, and it later turned out that what we should have called it to be to be accurate is the Oberth
0: maneuver. Because Herman Oberth. Oh,
1: that's right. That's who I'm. Yes, yes,
0: yes, yes, yes. In <clears throat> the 1920s. And, and for those who have <laughs> no idea what we're talking about, the idea is that you burn... You know, in, in, in a rocket system, you burn your fuel, you turn your engines on, at closest approach as you're whipping around a planet or a star, and that gives you a added acceleration using the gravitational assist of the star or planet to go where you want to go, kind of like a right. free energy stealing maneuver. But that's not what a muamua Mua did. As I, as I, no, as no. I as I've said to you privately, and I'll say now publicly, I think a muamua's Anomalous acceleration is something so intrinsic to this hyperdimensional physics model having to do with rotation and precession in a gravity field, as demonstrated by De Palma's spinning ball experiment, that that has all kinds of other implications for a muamua as an object. Because under that model, and I never said this before on the air, under that model... A muamua came through the solar system and something disturbed its flight. It was approached, maybe attacked by something that set it tumbling, rotating and processing. And that's how De Palma measured what he measured on those graphs. So then you have to ask yourself, well, who would have done that? And that opens up the doorway to Valet and his messengers of deception and who's tried Mm -hmm. to keep us down on the farm from knowing what's really going on out there and here. And that's a a whole series of programs beyond what we have time to get into tonight. But Oumuamua is not a simple story. It's very layered. No, it's Very complex. Let me, let me go back to one of Abby Loeb's ideas, which is the solar sail which frankly I think is a non-starter, and I want to ask your uh, opinion as a physicist. The two things that ruled out in my mind and in Loeb's mind that this thing was natural were it appeared not to be a cometary object. There was no trace of outgassing, and in a classic cometary model, outgassing changes orbits, et cetera, et cetera. So you have no outgassing, okay? The, The other one, which is much more rigorous is from the time it was first observed till the time it disappeared in the largest telescopes like keck or Tololo or whatever the light curve remained constant the rotation did not change and any thruster forces any any thrust through would have to go exactly through the center of mass either for a cometary object or for a solar sail to produce acceleration without rotational change. And that's where I think Abby's model of the light sail breaks down because solar radiation pressure would have changed rotation absolutely in the period of time that we could observe this thing.
1: So it may be be something more complex than that. I've been experiencing, experiencing something very funny the last five minutes. One of our cats, a little long-haired black and white Norwegian forest cat, decided to come up and <clears throat> make love to me. And love <laughs> against the phone while you were talking, which you may have heard her purring. Now she's moved off. It was very funny.
0: We 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 are an equal being opportunity employer here.
1: So cats cats are welcome.
0: Yes, yes.
1: So any anyway. Uh, you know, I've looked at what uh, what Avi said, and you may well be correct. I know of two teams who are investigating <clears throat> anomalous propulsion devices, and there may well be something with, with it. I know Sonny White, who's at NASA, uh, NASA Johnson, I believe, and also Heidi Fern and John Woodward, who are out on the West Coast, I forget exactly where. <clears throat> and they're looking at the EM thruster in the first case mm. and the Mach effect thruster in the second case.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The Mach effect thruster, if it turns out to be right, if it if it turns out to be correct, would be something that also could could do the uh, acceleration.
0: See, the cool part about the Palma experiment is you don't need an active system. You just need a passive system which has been knocked into a rotation precession um uh state by an exterior force like an impact like a shock wave and and see the coolest part is that Loeb is in a perfect position to duplicate the Palma's experiment because he's got all of Harvard physics behind him and it got, got right. grad students if he does that and photographs it and comes up with the same data there we are on the threshold of a totally New physics Does he have the kahunas Greg to do this Well he is a very
1: brave Man and what he Has done with and I think It's largely because of his position They can't The establishment can't hurt
0: him Much so They can go
1: against his grandfather Well there's a
0: damn Nobel Prize in it if he Succeeds because the Palmer Well but see it's so simple It's so incredibly stupidly simple to duplicate this and then to duplicate it like in the space station where you have a large volume in microgravity, zero gravity, and you have two balls and you rotate them. One rotates, one doesn't. They should, according to the model, the theory, they should diverge as the station is orbiting in a closed volume and you just photograph it. And bingo, you've got new physics and the potential for... Real space drives. Yeah. Will they let him? And will he have That's, the courage to do it if somebody says, "Don't you dare"?
1: That is a good question. That's <clears throat> that what... is a very good, and I think we're going to see because what is happening now is you go in public with a lot of stuff. Yep. And uh, <clears throat> I think because of that. We're going, to, we're going to see some very interesting developments.
0: <laughs> so you want to come along for the ride? As my friend Art used to say, I, want to take a ride? I'm
1: very, I'm, I'm very happy to be along for this ride.
0: This is Super. wonderful. This Super. is great. This is great. So, um, All right. You know, I, I have another dumb question to ask. I've been following the Breakthrough Starshot Project. And for those people who don't know what it is, describe briefly what these – The cockamamie, fascinating idea these guys have come up with to basically have star flight in our time.
1: Okay, it comes out of an idea that Bob Forward put forth in the 19, I think in 1985, and he called it Star Whisk. And he said, you take a little tiny nanoprobe, you put it in a microwave beam, and it has to be reflective of microwaves. <clears throat> and you can, even if it's light enough and if the beam is powerful enough, you can project this towards the stars. By means of radiation now pressure, reflection off, off the tiny you're, chip. You're not, now, Yuri Milner is one of these people, like Elon Musk, who puts aside the prejudice against billionaires, that all billionaires are evil people, money-grabbing people, know. There are some billionaires who earn their money that they'd like to do something
0: with it. Yeah, I'd, 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 it. I've actually mentioned Miller on the show several times. He's a kind of an expat Russian oligarch who lives in Northern California, I believe. Right, right. He lives in the former Bonds Mansion,
1: which is, in, which is near Palo Alto, overlooking the, uh, or you can, you can see the Golden Gate Bridge from that, or mm. the Bay Bridge, I forget which one. But anyway, what he decided to do was fund, put $100 million every year, no, $100 million totally, into listening for extraterrestrials, searching for extraterrestrials, and experimenting on starships. What Breakthrough would like to do, if, you know, if it's possible, and there's a lot of technical issues, of course, as well as socio political issues, put together a large laser system, 100 gigawatts. I'll tell you what, we're coming up to the the top
0: of the hour. This is too cool not to go into some decent detail. Then we get to my dumb question. So kind of hold it there. My guest of the morning is Dr. Greg Matloth. We're having a very, very wide-ranging cosmic conversation. And we haven't even gotten to the coolest parts yet, which are... What are the breakthroughs that Hubble could, uh, that Webb could give us? And what is this thing about stars being conscious, being sentient entities? I mean, that is just beyond the edge of forever. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
5: Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs, $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Listen while you travel, or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 an episode, $0.02 per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com.
0: Welcome back, everyone. Sunday night, Monday morning now here in the land of enchantment with a uh, gorgeous gibbous moon out there that we bounced radio signals off of last night, and we got answers. And by next weekend, when we do it again, we're going to actually measure with very fine precision the millisecond delay of the echoes from our transmissions the Moon, and we may have some very interesting things to talk about in terms of what's really on the Moon that NASA hasn't wanted to tell you for over 50 years. Anyway, back to our conversation with uh, Greg Matloff. Uh, Continue with the Breakthrough Starshot Project.
1: Okay, so we have Bob Forward's initial initial a uh, paper, I believe in Journal of Spacecraft <clears throat> and Rockets. And uh, along comes Phil Lubin, who's a physicist at the University of California. And basically he updates this somewhat. He says, okay, microwaves will probably roast a spacecraft, but what if you have <laughs> a very powerful laser, a terrestrial laser, on a mountaintop? If if you keep if you can keep a sail inside that laser for a sufficiently long period of time, if the reflectivity, if the temperature tolerance is and if the sail can be shaped appropriately, <clears throat> what happens is you can send it towards the nearest star at relativist, low relativistic speed, say as high as twenty percent the speed of light. And he publishes this in good play good 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 Places the so it could get to Proxima
0: Centauri in about 20 years. In about 20 years. And what's been
1: going on now? And this is called Project Starshot. Is people have been investigating <clears throat> the stability of the sail, the type of material you might construct the sail from, the metamaterials, the shape, the, basically how the laser beam would be shaped and uh, how the thing would communicate with us if it could. I mean, there's lots of... lots of How big
0: problems. would the, how big would these little sails that would react to radiation pressure from a laser directed at it through a big telescope on a big mountaintop like Mauna uh, <laughs> Kea B? How big would the Starshot spacecraft be? Okay.
1: You are taking something, an energy beam, about 100 times New York City's... Uh, Power electrical power requirements, and you're putting it on a sail the size of a piece of paper.
0: You mean like an eight by 10, eight and a half Something by eleven? Roughly
1: like that, yeah.
0: Oh yeah. wow, okay.
1: <clears throat> it's an amazing thing. There, and actually, it turns out that stability is an issue in this. <clears throat> I did take some water. If that's okay.
0: Now uh, yeah, drink as much as you want.
1: <laughs> fine, I'm fine at the at the moment. Uh, thank you though I will if I have to if I, if I need in order to keep it stable. this is something Jim Benford and his brother Greg Benford, the science fiction writer who's also a physicist right, demonstrated a NASA, NASA Marshall in two thousand. The sail needs a curvature to stay in a moving beam, and if the beam if one end of the beam is on the earth the be, the sail the beam will be moving. But if it's accelerating at five or 10,000 Earth gravities, how can it possibly have a curvature? It'll collapse to be a flat sheet in a millisecond or less. Mm. So what do you do? And what I did, one of the things I did in the year 2000, and we were basically encouraged by Bob Forward to do this, Bob Forward encouraged Les Johnson, or demanded, not encouraged. Bob Forward didn't always encourage. No,
0: him, I I ran into Bob at a conference once, and he could be incredible. He was a genius, super genius, but he was incredibly acerbic. He,
2: he was. He, and he, he, basically,
0: he, made, he made Carl look like a pussycat in terms of ego.
2: Exactly, exactly.
1: <laughs> and we come back from a conference in uh, Italy, where he met my wife and discussed message plaques on interstellar spacecraft. She had a show there about it. And we're in the audience, and he's giving a little talk in Huntsville, and he's introduced by Les, and he theatrically points at C, my my wife, and says, you see that woman? (laughs) You see her Les? Fund her to do a holographic prototype interstellar message plaque. And Les quickly revised my little grant through Pace University at the time. So she was able to do a holographic message plaque. And we had all types of fun with it. We wrote a nice, it's been in many, it's been in papers, it's been in books. And uh, some of our 13 books have come now 13. And you you mentioned nine. But it may, it, basically led to some interesting thought. I'm thinking about Breakthrough and suddenly it hits me. You want to keep something, it has to have a curvature to stay in the sail, but it has to be flat. Or have a hologram of a spherical object. Mm. That will do. And I almost
0: felt... Oh, that's that she genius.
1: Did she did a demonstration of this. Uh, she came out as an honorary member of Breakthrough and she showed off the sale. And one of the people there who got very excited about this is Mason Peck. <clears throat> Mason was a, for many years, he was the chief technologist for NASA at NASA headquarters. Right. Now he is a professor of, aeron- of astronomical engineering at Cornell University. And when Mason has put together a team of graduate students and postdocs, on something called CubeSat Alpha. And basically, they have—they basically had have C with a holographer, an Australian woman named Martina Mongovius, do a series of six holograms. This will be affixed to the CubeSat. The CubeSat, so this will test, will demonstrate that a holographic or diffractive surface will act in space the way it does on the ground. That right. will, for a cost of a few hundred thousand dollars, greatly enhance the technological readiness level of such such etched or photographed shapes of space. And it also will have the little chip sats to demonstrate that you can have these little chip sats attached to a sail. And a sail, a small sail, will also unfurl from the tube sat. This was supposed to have been launched long ago, but because of COVID, of course, I mean, because of COVID, the Cornell campus closes down every couple of months. It sure. just happened again. <clears throat> and this, of course, sets back operations. Other students come in. But currently it's scheduled to be launched by a Falcon 9 and to be unfurled at the, at the space station. Sometime in May, May of next year. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, of course, Omicron might screw that schedule, as as Delta and its predecessor screwed the previous schedule. We'll see. Anyway, uh, this has been, I think, my major contribution to breakthrough at this particular point. And other people have been working on, it doesn't have to be a hologram, there are other ways of getting that type of pattern on it. So it's being called a diffractive sailing, and Grover Schwarzlander at Rochester University, major optics center, has been working with that. And you might also emboss it. Uh, if you look at your credit card, your credit card probably has mm-hmm. an embossed hologram. And that's not done with the. With the well, there's a million the children's
0: books that use this embossing technology to give yeah. the illusion of a hologram.
1: And I believe it's the lithographic lithographic process. Yeah, I think that I think that, yeah. I'm, I'm not. But anyway, it shows that this technology is advancing very very rapidly, and I'm sure we can solve the sale issues. I'm not so sure about the lasers because a laser that possible, that powerful, it would have other, I mean, you could do other things. With. Well,
0: you can think immediately <sighs> weapon, weapon, weapon.
1: Yes, Yeah. but it can, it can be a good weapon. Uh, this is something that I did. I, I verified something that Phil Lubin and his students and postdocs had published in a number of places. And I think Phil Lubin was the reviewer of the paper because he made sure that I quoted all of his students, which was nice. And basically, you could use this thing to destroy or divert a 500-meter or a 1-kilometer pure ion asteroid on a collision
0: course with Earth. Oh, now that's, which a, is useful. Amazing. that's a useful tool. <laughs> and so you I could think. also probably use it to deorbit all the incredibly stupid space junk that like the Chinese mm-hmm. created by blowing up that weather satellite. And the Russians right. uh, are claiming that they blew up one of theirs, which I don't believe. Uh, I think it's more interesting and complex, but the point is it could it could literally clear a path back into orbit from all the stupidity of you know launching gloves and bolts and flakes right. of paint and all that stuff. But again, the downside is in the wrong hands, it becomes a weapon.
1: So my my only my only thought that that might, be, might make it happen is you would need two sites on two high mountains, one in the Northern Hemisphere, one in the Southern Hemisphere. So have it done as a joint project of the U.S. Space Force and the Russian and Chinese equivalents, and maybe get the Japanese and Europeans
0: Yeah, of course, and have everybody
1: watching too. everybody else. Yeah, why not? And they watch it and you, you use it to, to launch interstellar or interplanetary probes and to divert.
0: And defend the Earth against be, asteroids. You yeah, have to defend the Earth. Yeah. yeah. You, can probably, the only... you could probably even do something with much bigger asteroids if you had more warning because all you want to do is yes, ab- yep. You basically want to ablate the surface and cause a little right. nudge. And it doesn't take much right. of a nudge. That's what DART is supposed to do. To basically make a rendezvous into a non rendezvous, right? Well, I did it.
1: I had a one-year warning time. <clears throat> I forget what Lubin and his students did with warning time, but it has to be around that too. And one year, you know, is not is not unreasonable.
0: No, not at all. Even no, one the... year
1: is is like a brief
0: wink in the history of time. Drink more water. Drink more water. While I That's set you lost. up, while I set you up to ask my dumb question. Well, When I first heard of the the breakthrough Starshot project, I thought, oh, this is cool. Using lasers and solar sails to accelerate a spacecraft to 20% the speed of light, take about, you know, Proxima Centuries for some uh, light years away and change. So 20% times five, that's, uh, you know, 20 years. That's within major NASA missions like uh, Cassini was that time frame or New Horizons. Is that Hubble? uh, Or or Hubble, yeah. uh, I'm thinking of things that go places that have a team. Or the
1: planetary mission.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so all that was reasonable. Then I started looking and I started doing a few things on on paper with a pencil. I thought, wait a minute. How the hell with a little tiny chipset the size of a postage stamp tugged by a solar sail blown by this laser, when you get to Proxima Centauri, How the hell do you get the data behind? That is a very good question. And
1: I don't know if I, if I have an answer. Uh, Dave Messerschmidt, who I think is the son of the, of the famous fighter plane company, or the grandson
0: probably, Right.
1: has been investigating this with uh, probably with Phil Lubin's team. And, you know... Uh, I'm not sure there's an answer. Jeff Landis looked at this and he doesn't see any way of getting sufficient power in the, to this little thing. Neither did I. That was, to me,
0: that was a huge showstopper. Yeah. I mean, okay, so you got a little chip sailing past a star at twenty percent the speed of light. It doesn't do you any good unless you can see what it sees. It's like that old joke, you know, if seeing isn't isn't there to cover it, does a tree falling in the forest make a sound?
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I have problems with that too. It's still, people are still playing with the idea and we'll see what they, what but what are some of the far out
0: ideas that they're looking to get around what seems to be kind of a fundamental law of physics?
1: Okay, well, one thing that I did with
0: with Les Johnson and decades before
1: that with Al Fenley was basically if you have something like an electrodi- electrodynamic tether, and you deploy it from this thing. You can, if you do it right, you can get energy from the interstellar medium. But of course, how much energy can you get in something that's small? You have a payload of maybe a gram. What can you do with that? Mm. You know, what can you do? And something that also that um, Carl Sagan presented to me mm. once. I gave a talk with Claudio Maccone at Cornell in um, 1992. as the 500th anniversary of Columbus's voyage to the, to the, to the Americas, first voyage. And um, we talked about sending a sail craft to the sun's gravity focus and using that, that, that to basically greatly amplify astronomical images from the other side, the objects occulted by the sun. Mm -hmm. And Carl, who was busy sitting in the first row eating a pastrami sandwich, having a good time with us, said, (laughs) how long will it take to get your sail out there? And I said, well, with conventional modern day sail designs, I think we can do it in 40 to 60 years. And he said, yeah, you're going to, this is quite feasible. You could do this it will cost a fair amount of development money. At the same time, terrestrial and space-based telescopes will be evolving and developing, and they're much less expensive because they're nearby. And you don't have to maintain this large infrastructure to track the thing. So any information you can get with this, you'll be able to get much faster and much cheaper with something near Earth. And, of course, he was right about the about the economics of it. And I think this is also another problem that you can't, no matter how good you are with nano and pico miniaturization on these chipsets, how much can you put into one gram? There will be a limit. And even if you can survive, get around the energy problem, you know, you talk about, okay, maybe we can... We can, we can get a useful photograph, but I guarantee you, in 20 or 30 years, we will be able, maybe even with web, who knows, people will be able to have photographs of the surface of Proxima B, and maybe we can detect biosignatures on it. So maybe, maybe we should look at Project Starshot as something to advance the technology. But not something that will actually ever fly
0: yeah, I think you're probably right there because I can envision a very large stabilized array where you know basically it's a it's a multi element interferometer like uh, the the hobby telescope in Texas or whatever, except it's floating in space it, they're little station keeping separate mirrors, and you can create a huge remember the 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 the, the, the diffraction limit is the Distance apart of the farthest elements of the of the mirror. Right. So you take two like Hubble uh, web type mirrors. I keep doing that, and you put them a mile apart, and you basically got a telescope with a mile diameter mirror, and that's going to give you incredible imagery, provided your your mirrors, your floating mirrors, are big enough to get decent signals to noise. So your 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 eating friend was totally right. It's almost like the old Heinlein problem you know, arc ships versus real starships. By the time an arc ship gets to another star, technology and physics will advance to where a a warp drive vehicle will pass them in the night and pick them up to take them to have hamburgers on Alpha side When you get there, you have to go through
1: customs. Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) And maybe Chinese customs
0: at the rate we're going. It might
1: well be. It might well be. So it's you know it's a remarkable it's a remarkable concept and also people used to say how in the world with this interferometer could you keep it positioned so closely well with the gravity wave detectors
0: they do it yeah it's called laser interferometry yeah and 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 on earth we have to evacuate a whole damn tunnel in space you don't have to evacuate anything it's really really precision station keeping. Yeah. And again there are some breakthroughs. There are some breakthroughs on the horizon that will lead to very, very, very large arrays in space, optical resolution or better, and you don't have to go almost anywhere. You stay in the Earth Moon system. Hey, we got ten minutes till the bottom of the hour. Let's let's tackle the big things that Webb is gonna blow the doors off, okay?
1: Okay. One thing it's going to do, I think is we're going to be able to look back right to the start when stars just begin to turn on.
4: 3.7 and
0: billion years ago. Or 13.7. <laughs> Did I say three? I meant yeah. 13. Yeah, just after the
1: cosmic dark age, yep. we'll be able to see the very earliest stars. And that will be interesting, too, because it would be interesting to see how large these things were because my concept that I play with <clears throat> is that they were very big and they didn't last very long. And they, com- they, be- they
0: become black holes. Well, the largest star are- that I think the Eddington limit, which is radiation pressure in the core, allows, is on the order of 100 solar masses. Are we talking right. stars that are maybe 10 times more massive?
2: I'd say more
1: than that because I think I think how do the spiral galaxies get million solar mass black holes or billion solar mass black holes in the center their centers? <clears throat> Something early on had to had to prepare these black holes, and I think that's one thing we're going to be able to
0: witness with with if Webb we'll do that with Webb
1: with Webb wow. with Webb. I also think it might be able to... It should do better with imaging extrasolar planets than um, Hubble has been able to do or the terrestrial telescopes have been able to do. I think it should... uh, With transiting extrasolar planets, it might be able to pick up biosignatures. I don't know if... No, wait. You
0: probably should should explain what you just said, okay? Okay. When I
1: planet passes in front of a star what happens is the stars the planet
0: you get you basically basically get a transit and or an eclipse the the planet a
1: transit and or an eclipse
0: and the it it affects the light
1: but of the star it also affects the spectrum from the star (sighs) might we be able to detect the spectrum Atomic oxygen, ozone, methane, things like that, that would indicate a living world like we have on the Earth. Now, one thing that people would like to be able to do is, and I'd love to see this, to go to some of the Earth-like planets and see, are there techno signatures? Can we see lights on the planet's surface, the night side of the planet? Um, Ring. Very large satellites. Can we detect very large satellites? Let's say things like you know,
0: like like uh, climate change. Well, how about industrial rings? rings? Remember Bezos, yeah, who was
3: yeah, who was exactly. basically
0: stealing madly from my old friend Kraft Erica, who said the only proper use for a technological civilization is to put all the industries in space, and right. and, and save the planet as a as a living room. So Bezos, you know, multi-billionaire Bezos, has adopted this philosophy as the reason for his Blue Origin mission. And he's talking about transferring industry into space and all that. Well, if you do it big enough and you make an artificial set of rings of industry around the Earth in lower medium Earth orbit, if that planet were translated to the distance of some of the nearest stars, you could literally, with a large enough optical telescope, like Webb, see not only the occultation of the artificial rings, but you could maybe pick up the infrared heat emission of the waste heat from all the industry in space. Right.
1: And also, something even larger than that, a sufficiently advanced civilization might <clears throat> do something, might construct some stellar sized object via their sun to maybe reflect light to transmit energy uh, as a shell some type of a ring world as is a Larry Niven uh, mm-hmm. science fiction. He's also done lately with Greg
0: Benson. He's expanded on that. So <laughs> Well have are you are you familiar with the weird bizarre soap opera of Tabby's Star? Yes, yes, yes. Why don't we it's have, like have Webb look at Tabby's Star? I think
1: it should. And I think maybe, maybe if it could detect a large object near the star but not attached to the star, that would indicate these things exist. There were also in the literature a number of other possible anomalies of the same type, maybe not as dramatic as Tabby's Star, but certainly very exciting. And it's not impossible that these could be um, detected as well and observed as well, and maybe we'd we'll find signatures there. Well. Did, did you ever...
0: Did, sorry, did you ever have conversations with uh, Freeman Dyson?
1: I met Freeman Dyson
0: and I felt, it, I never really got to know him, but I
1: did go to some of his talks. Uh, I, I wish I had.
0: You mean gotten to know
1: him? Yeah, I once asked him a question. Apparently, Starwisp was originally Freeman's idea, and he did it on the back of an envelope and sent it to Bob, to Bob Forward, and Bob Forward ran with it. So when he gave a talk once, I told him that was a mighty powerful envelope, and he brushed me off and said, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I went mm. on to the next
0: question. So
1: he <clears throat> he didn't want to talk about Starwisp, which was mm. okay, I could understand that,
0: because okay. Starwisp
1: would not have worked.
0: Right. Okay, let me ask you this question. Dyson is is known for the proposal of englobing a star with a huge number of orbital platforms, not a shell, not a a beach ball with the sun in the center, but a huge number of orbiting platforms that would basically absorb all the star energy and then utilize it for the local technological civilization. That would reduce the star's optical output and shift it into the infrared, because... Obviously, the energy will get get away at some point as infrared. Webb can actually optically detect and image such Dyson spheres if they're out there within some reasonable distance.
1: One interesting thing also that Dyson did, and I did it in my publications on this, and so so has Alfie Loeb, Call them Stapledon Dyson spheres because
0: the oh. idea really goes
1: back to Olaf Stapledon's
0: 1937
1: science fiction
0: story. Who was, it, of maker. course, Arthur's lodestar. Arthur I took know, so know. many of his ideas publicly acknowledged uh, the huge debt yeah. he owed to Olaf Stapledon. And so has Benson. Benson and
1: Nibben and have done the same thing. People are doing that now, but for the popular scientific press refuses to do that. They continue to call these things Dyson spheres mm. or Dyson shells, even though Dyson corrected them for 20 years and <laughs> they got tired of it.
4: Yep, yep.
1: Um,
4: it's very, you
0: know,
1: it's going to be an interesting time. We okay, we
0: are we are, we are, we are, we oh are, my gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm falling down the job here. See, I get too caught up in the conversation. My guest this morning is Dr. Greg uh, Matloff. We're having... Good grief, a far-ranging discussion that goes light years out there. And we've got a couple more really cool things that Webb can do. And in the last half hour, we're going to talk about Greg's really ingenious idea that stars might be conscious beings in the galaxy. And that brings up shades of Fred Hoyle and the Black Cloud and interstellar communication between whole star systems. By Anyway, we'll get to all that. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. The last half hour you don't want to miss. We shall return. Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, Monday morning here in the land of enchantment. The other side of midnight, my guest this morning, Dr. Greg Matloff, who, as you probably can tell by now, is a fertile um, creator of some really interesting and cool ideas and is kind of like what science should be and too much of the time is not populated by people, by beings, by curious, conscious entities that simply can think outside the box and ask the most important question, can it be tested? So I think we're kind of done with the Hubble, uh, I keep doing that, the web breakthroughs, (laughs) you know, uh, for how many, how many decades, you know, how many generations have we talked about Hubble? We're going to all have to now think about Web. Anyway, um, I, I can't think of anything we've kind of missed in terms of fundamental shattering breakthroughs that Web will introduce. Can you?
1: No, I think, I think, of course, what's going to happen is there'll be a whole series of unanticipated breakthroughs that will freak out everybody, including us. But that's fun. And that will happen. Well,
0: that's what we want. Yes, yes.
1: That's exactly what we want.
0: Yep. Yep. Okay, let's go to your seminal genius level idea. And I'm going to ask another dumb question. Given that they're huge fusion plasma balls, which are kind of at maximum entropy, how the hell can a star be conscious? Okay.
1: One person who's looked at this... initially, is Eric Jansch, J-A-N-T-S-C-H, who was an Austrian physicist who worked at Berkeley. He died in 1981, Hmm. I suspect of AIDS, but it just called, the web calls it, a rapid-wasting disease. But anyway, he wrote a book called The Self-Organizing Universe, which has become a collective item. You can get an original copy for four or five hundred dollars from Amazon today, what well, I did. Wasn't there a guy named
0: Prigogine who was also in the same field? Oh
1: yes, but I've never. I'm trying to remember his. Yes, yes, there is. But anyway, when I needed for this work the Yance book, I looked at the copyright laws and it said, if you cop- if you photocopy a document for your own research work and you're not doing it for commercial purposes, that is legal. So I went to the Cooney Library, and I saw that both the Graduate Library and the Hunter Library had copies of this book. I took it out, and I then took it to my home computer, and I began scanning. And I probably scanned in 150 of the 200 pages, Mm. which is wonderful what he did. Talking about self-organization, he does say that self-organization is a prerequisite for life, for consciousness, for intelligence, what have you. But how could a star, being very, very hot, have this? And he demonstrates that the star itself, the interior of the star, isn't where the consciousness would be. It would be in a thin layer above the chromosphere, and I believe it's called the reversing layer. And that that is also where you find molecules, a
0: certain amount of complexity in the cooler stars, including the sun. Like, well, basically and, red giants and supergiants. Well, also
1: M-class stars, G-class stars, uh, K-class stars on the
0: main sequence. Really? Really? That hot? Okay.
1: Yeah. You yeah. know, as it turns out, you begin... With the, I think the F8 or the F9 stars, what's where you first start getting. Okay,
0: okay, here's, here, here, here's, here's another dumb question. Can the Parker Solar Probe physically go through this layer? No. Oh, okay. This The Parker
1: Solar Probe, will, it is it has entered the corona already, last I saw, right, last right. I read. And we'll get, this layer is probably just above the photosphere. And the Parker at its closest perihelion, I believe it's going to be four solar radii Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, okay. So that from, the, that, from that. the
1: solar center.
0: So See, it'll be a
1: bit far from So that but was that was may, a
0: that was a dumb question, okay.
1: No, it wasn't. There's no such thing as a <laughs> dumb
0: question. It
1: it will it will get very interesting data about that. The way I got into this was purely by accident. I got a call from a friend who later had become a co-author. Who was then the ed- at the time he was editing the journal of the British Interplanetary Society, Kelvin Long, and he sent me an email in 2011 when I was still teaching full time. And he said, "Look, we're going to have a one-day symposium on the work of Olaf Stapledon." And would you like to come? And of course, I would love to come. But in the middle of the semester, when they schedule it, I couldn't fly over there for one or two days. So he said he'd be very happy to present my paper. So my, I was accepted as a person who would be participating in this. And most people, I realize, are going to be writing about the technological projections. There were dozens of them from StarMaker. and. I said, you know, I could talk about world ships or arcs or Dyson spheres from now till tomorrow. I want to look at this guy's core metaphysics and the core metaphysics of Stapleton says that the universe is conscious at some level. And basically what we do today call panpsychism, although I couldn't, I didn't know even how to spell that at the time. And... uh, a symbol, a, a symptom of this is that a portion of stellar motion is volitional. So I said, okay. Wait a minute, back up. Say that so, again carefully. Okay. The the universe, there is a field of consciousness that permeates the universe. And a symptom of this is that a portion of stellar motion, volitional, is non-gravitational.
0: Meaning, Meaning they There's are this- moving around the galaxy because they want to, not just because yes, of gravity.
1: something... Right, not wow. just because of gravity. So, of course, I I wanted to find proof or no proof. I would have been happy to go either way.
0: No, wait, wait, no, wait. wait would, would, this, would this be an answer to the Rubin <clears throat> mystery? Why galaxies don't appear to be Keplerian objects? Maybe, but
1: I don't want to... At the time, I didn't want to attack... Uh, dark matter advocates too much.
0: Okay. I figured I'd leave it
1: one step at a time.
0: Tiptoe through the tulips.
1: Exactly. Tiptoe, exactly, (laughs) exactly. So I decided I had to do a literature search. Is there any totally strange stellar motions, anomalistic stellar motions, only in the direction of galactic revolution for a star? And I would love to be able to tell you that I went to the 42nd – what used to be the 42nd Street, now 37th Street Research Library, buried myself in 40 years of Acta of, uh, <laughs> act Astronomica, Soviet Astronomy, Act Journal, Astronomical Journal. No. I did something a lot simpler. I went to my computer. I typed in G-O-O-G-L-E dot com.
0: Google is I'm your friend. <laughs>
1: And then I said anomala, stellar motion anomalies, or stellar kinematic anomalies. And what sprang up was something called Padenego's discontinuity. Pavel Padenego was a very renowned Soviet Russian astronomer in the 40s and 50s. I believe he died in 1960. Oh, yeah, he
0: was, he was very famous on those huge O&B-type star clusters. I believe he did that too,
1: but he discovered something called perenigo's discontinuity. It was confirmed by none other than our old friend, Nancy Roman. We learned that. I learned that later. And what he noticed was cooler stars, F9, G-type, K-type, M-type stars, move a bit faster, about 20 kilometers per second faster, around the center of the galaxy, than the hotter stars. And where does this discontinuity come in? And it is a sharp dust discontinuity at exactly the same point where people like Otto Struve demonstrated in the 1930s molecules come in to the spectra of stars. So what does this mean? Well, what would molecules have to do with consciousness? If you look at quantum theories of consciousness, there's a lot of them. Many of them, like my old friend, Harris Walker, Evan Harris Walker, talked about neuronal consciousness. Maybe you have a wave function of an electron bouncing around inside between neurons. And when it gets out, you have a thought, or maybe you have ESP, who knows? CIA thought, of, of course, it was ESP. And then, of course, Roger Penrose and Stuart Hameroff talk about smaller uh, things, than neurons, smaller structures in all living cells called microtubulants. Mm. And this, this demonstrates how even creatures like amoebas seem to have positional You know, they and slime mold amoeba can apparently make decisions and decide what to do without having a brain, without having neurons. But stars don't have that. On the other hand, they do have these stars have molecules. And one of the quantum consciousness
2: theory theoretical
1: structures or hypothesis basically says that consciousness comes into the universe do the Casimir effect. And the Casimir effect basically says you have fluctuations in the universal vacuum. They're always bouncing. If If you have two thin plates very closely separated, they both have electrical charges, there's more pressure upon them than you would expect. And that is because not all of these can fit. Fluctuations can fit inside. So the outside fluctuations are pushing it and Casimir was able to demonstrate this is one of the things <clears throat> that keeps molecules together
0: so so, like an exterior radiation pressure from vir- virtual particles popping into three d reality from another hyperspatial realm, right exactly
1: and this this goes on this this effect was known to the Romans in fact, which was amazing. they knew that. Metal plates tend to stick together. They didn't know why.
0: Well, you know, there's also this but, theory, and I forget, uh, Ben Flandern was, was doing a book on this, uh, where gravity is supposed to be an exterior pressure in toward a planet, which kind of like shadows its own self. So the, the the differential forces are greater inward than outward. So you have a gravitational acceleration inward, but it's really a gravitational pressure from outside in toward the core of the planet.
1: Okay. That's another possibility.
0: But anyway, I I moved with this. It
1: was presented. Then I had to have it published. And JBIS gave me, I'm on the scientific
0: board. The Journal of the British uh, Interplanetary Society. Yeah.
1: I had to go through
0: four reviewers.
1: (laughs) I've never had more than two before. (laughs) And one guy came out and argued with me and said, I'm a materialist. I reject this completely. And I came back to him and said, I'm a materialist too. You have to let vacuum pressure in as something which influences the material world. So I won the case. I was able to get published. I had to shorten it by a factor of two, mm-hmm. which I did. I then put out the original thing on Paul Gilson's Tori Dream's blog and I began to investigate it further, and I realized that you know, just what, what my data had been based upon Hipparchos' data from the early European astro, astrometric satellite, and it goes out to 260 light years. But there was a alternative theory for Perinago's discontinuity, saying that periodically. A dark cloud, a diffuse nebula, a stellar nursery, whatever you want to call it, passes through our galactic vicinity. And because it is higher density than the surrounding galactic medium, intergalactic, interstellar medium, rather, it drags the less massive stars along. This is called a spiral arms density. Oh, curve. I
0: was just going to ask you, amazing. is that the spiral arms density curve thing?
1: right. And it's a nice theory, except it's wrong. And the reason it's wrong (laughs) is these people, it was another indication that there's a lot of people, a lot of astrophysicists who never look at the sky. They spend all their time on computers. Mm -hmm. I went went three-star catalogs. I have the Messier at home. I have the Herschel at home for deep sky objects. I was able to get the new... Mm -hmm. General Survey, NGS, I think it is, NG, online. N,
0: N, NGC, I N, NGC, think.
1: NGC, New, Ger- New General Catalog. And I looked for, is there, I knew that the Hipparchus data was good out to 260 light years. How big are these objects? Well, there was only one of the known diffuse nebula, larger than 500 light years across. And that is called 30 de radio or the tarantula nebula which is in the larger magellanic cloud a satellite to the milky way (laughs) and okay so i couldn't with the data that was then there disprove density waves it looked pretty good because if there's only one the chances of that coming through our neighborhood Mm. is pretty
0: remote so So i I had
1: to wait for a long i had to wait for gaia yes and in 2015 when after Gaia had been launched, I was at a conference in Turin where they where they were analyzing the Gaia information. I tried to get in, and they knew I was there. They basically <laughs> blocked the door. Oh. They said you have to be patient. You must wait. I contacted another person who had done work on Patagonia discontinuity, Richard Branham in Argentina, and he got back with a three word. Email response, patience, patience, <laughs> patience,
0: <laughs> patience, prudence,
1: and then, and then in 2018, along came the paper that I sent you from the wonderful group in Saint Augustine. I'm not Saint Augustine, Saint Petersburg, and they basically validate Perenigo's discontinuity
0: out to a thousand light years or more,
1: which of course put me into seventh heaven.
0: Well, well, for one thing, it's 16 times the volume of space. Yeah. So it really demonstrates that this
1: is a non-local or a galactic phenomenon, which made me very, very happy. But then there was something else. There was a peculiar bump in both the Hipparchos data and the Gaia data. And the bump is basically between a geostar going out to... You're an F8 or an F9? No, not G9, K9 or K8 or K9. And if you read the paper, it talks about that. You can see the bump if you look up at Anger Palenengo's discontinuity online. what will probably come up if you look up images. My technical drawing of this, you can see that bump very distinctly.
0: When you say bump, you're now speech. talking about as a kind of a, an aberration in the velocity anomaly,
4: right? It yeah, you
1: know, it's like all of a sudden it goes up and then it goes down again. And I had ignored it. I said, maybe it's just something with the maybe Maybe
0: we should edge. call it a spike as opposed to a bump.
1: Pull it, I could call it a spike. That's,
0: that's a good but the St. Petersburg team,
1: Vitevsky, I think is his name, and his colleagues <clears throat> had a lot more stars to deal with. They had instead of 10,000 they had more than a million. Wow. And what they learned is cool, the stars, as they age, speed up in their revolution velocity around the galaxy. And this was amazing. So I went online again with uh, Paul Gilster's blog. We talked about this. And I said, maybe this also is another validation to stellar consciousness but some of the very clever blog respondents said, "Maybe so, but maybe it also is the product of an advanced galactic civilization
0: that's all around us," and I couldn't rule that out. Now that's an interesting <clears throat> so, idea. So I or let me add a college. third one to confuse your poor life already.
2: <laughs>
0: maybe it's a product of a different <laughs> physics. I go back to the maybe spinning so. ball because. Maybe so. But see, Avi Loeb can test that. So simple. Maybe, so, so maybe, cheap. He want, maybe, maybe he'll be the one to do it. That'll be interesting.
1: Well, <laughs> wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. You,
0: some... you happen to work at a university. Why don't <laughs> you test it?
1: Well, our university
0: doesn't really have very many exper-
1: experimental labs at this point. Mm. At City Tech is mostly theory, and that's largely because of space.
0: Right. It'll be
1: the big... And you know it will be the big, the big research university where this test will be made. But anyway, I put together a research team with Roman Kestubichevali of Georgian Georgian descent, who teaches at the college with me, and or he's a fundamental physicist, and Kelvin Long in the UK, who had some ideas. We got a paper out after some aggravation in JBIS in which we pointed out eight of the eight possible modes that a star could accelerate. And the the, the standard physics modes don't work. The ones that work better require either a hyper-civilization or a sentient star.
2: Mm. And
1: so I published something recently with, with Roman, uh, Kelvin was working on a PhD program, so he didn't want to get involved with this paper, in the Journal of Consciousness Exploration and Research, this is my latest publication just came out, <clears throat> and what we really talk about there is what this is going to mean for the physics paradigm, because if future work reveals that stellar acceleration is real, and if Normal physics doesn't handle it. And if we don't come up with some new physics pretty quickly, we're going to have to accept either aliens all over the place and all around us
0: or smart stars. And then we're into Ball's hypothesis, which he published in American Scientist decades ago, which was called the zoo hypothesis. It's the reason we don't interact with these guys is that we're in quarantine. We might be, or it, it might be that,
1: rather than being in quarantine,
2: they don't, it,
1: it may be that organic life, about type of life mm. is kind of rare. And they want us to be able to evolve as far as we can on our own.
0: And of course, maybe with a little directed so help we them. <laughs> we're talking we're talking Roddenberry's prime directive. Yeah, exactly.
2: Okay, I have an I,
0: I have another dumb question. We only have about six minutes, so I want to get my okay. dumb questions in. If 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 let's say the sun is one of these, it's a G type star. And for people who don't follow these letters, the cooler the star, the farther out in the alphabet it goes. So it's G is yellow, K is orange, M is red. So the basically the temperature goes down and the mass goes down. Mm-hmm. As you get further out in the alphabet. Okay. So a G-type star, where our sun is a G-type star. Let's assume it's got consciousness. How does it interact with our consciousness on either Earth alone or in a previously inhabited epoch when, you know, we were all over the solar system with colonies and cities and, you know, habitats and whatever. In other words, how does a star interact with other consciousness in its own system? That's a good question.
1: Uh, I know two people who've been working with this. One is Clement Vidal, who is a Belgian natural philosopher. I almost said national philosopher, but natural philosopher. (laughs) He does also a lot of work with SETI. And Clement has demonstrated that at least one class of stars, the parasitic binaries, where one star is eating another one,
2: mm-hmm. and he
1: calls them stellavores, satisfy 18 of the 20 requirements for living organisms. He put this out on Acta Astronautica. Really? Wrote a book about it. Oh. Yeah. If you remind me by email, I can send you a copy of oh, this super, paper. Oh, super. Because yeah. just please email me for Clement Vidal.
0: The other person... as opposed it. to carnivores.
1: Carnivores, exactly. Send me an email. I'll be happy to send that to you. Not too early tomorrow morning, but okay. this morning. Okay. <laughs> but right, yes. I will get it out. Uh, the other person is Rupert Sheldrake, who is a very controversial British
0: biologist. You think? Rupert-, Rupert published a brilliant Rupert. paper, which you can't find anywhere now on the web, where he actually has measured differences of the speed of light, mainstream measurable and I, differences, and they banished the paper. They, that's interesting.
1: That's very
0: interesting. I may have to
1: ask him for a copy of that paper. Yeah,
0: have him send one Thanks. to me too, please. Yeah, I will.
1: I will. Okay, now, but but Rupert, when he was doing his postdoc, he worked or he organized an agricultural research station in Hyderabad, India. So he became very fascinated by Hinduism. And there is a sun salute, a a, a salute to the sun, which is regularly done, and it's done in yoga as well. So he saw that the sun as a conscious entity
2: Mm. is very
1: much part of Hindu thought. And he sat on this for years, but along came my paper. And he'd like to do a little experiment.
3: <clears throat>
1: and a little experiment is you come up with a, an appropriate sunspot uh, orientation. You broadcast this in the direction of the sun, maybe by radio. You have a lot of sufficiently talented people meditating on it.
0: You mean you send and it you like
1: you a pictogram? It. Yeah, and you see if the sun will reproduce that to communicate with us. Oh and it's an interesting idea. It would be oh, yeah. if it can be done. And of course the problem with it and he knows is you know, <clears throat> he would probably have to come up with this pictogram and then have to find an appropriate source to keep it with <laughs> but, but it would have to demonstrate that he he or his group came up with it first. Yeah. And then later on, reveal hey, the appropriate hey, date, what the correlation
0: is. Greg, we've run out of runway.
1: But <laughs> I've run out of voice.
0: We, we have to do this again. <laughs> this was so much fun. My, my guest this morning was uh, Dr. Greg Matloff, absolute uh, entrepreneur and, and astrophysicist and out-of-the-box thinker. Remember, next weekend, our Christmas weekend, the transmissions to Oumuamua and the moon... Be there or be square. Uh, We'll do it on Christmas Eve. You won't hear that one. We'll give you the results on Christmas night and the night after Christmas. And until then, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night. Okay, we are clear.
5: Well, that was definitely a fun show.
0: <laughs> Greg, are you there? Did we lose him? I don't. Yeah, he's gone. Oh, he... I, just, it's, it's, I told him to stick around. You know, it's, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. I mean, he did wonderful. He just needs to drink more water. He's dehydrated. So. Okay. Oh, that was wonderful. Yes, yes. yes. That was a lot of fun. And it set things up perfectly for... You know, if Abby Lowe doesn't get this message, it will never get to him. <laughs> okay. So you're going to send Contea the file. You and I are going to talk tomorrow. Contea, you and I will – I don't know whether I'll call you after I talk with this guy or I'll wait till you know, later in the evening. I'm probably even going to want to do a couple of things. I have to get some food uh, in here. So my day yeah. is chopped up. Okay. What was that, Keith?
3: 18 plus.